Welcome to the Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan O'Neill. And today we have an excellent guest. This is Jack Thomas. He is the owner, CEO, and founder of BASE, located in Bangkok. BASE is a hit gym with strength and conditioning, and it focuses on, well, the USP is the metrics. So we're going to dive all deep into that and understand specifically what he means by that technological advancement in the uh, the hit industry of strength and conditioning and how those metrics come into play. Um, before we get started, subscribe, like, smash, do all that fun stuff, turn on the bell, do whatever you want, but uh, subscribe. Okay, let's get this started. Uh, Jack, thanks a lot for joining us today. Not at all, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. So Jack, Jack actually, he's come down from, well, come up from Rawai. You're just down here for the weekend, yeah? That's right, yeah. I got a wedding that I'm going to on the weekend, but we stay at Stay. Not sure if you're familiar with that. They have a gym, which I helped with the concept design with a few years ago. So since then, I've become a good friend with the guy who, who operates it. Stay, so. Is this at Fresca? The yes, same, same thing. Okay, yeah, so yeah. they're the ones that they have that um, cold bath and the, the sauna. and That's right. They've got yeah. the onsen. They've got a great restaurant, Fresca. Fantastic yeah. fitness concept, of course. So yeah. yeah, I spoke to them the first two and a half years ago. They wanted to do something special in the fitness space. That's where we met. And so every time we come down to Phuket, we pretty much stay there. So what, what part were you involved in that? You're doing some consulting or kind of just helping a friend? More on the consulting side, but it's become a friendship. So okay. he wanted to do something special. He wanted to do something different. I think he had a very strong vision of his hotel needing something different. So many hotels in Phuket, of course, recognized that it needed that extra edge. And he personally wanted to get more into health, fitness, wellness. He saw very much a trend that way, yeah. certainly in terms of tourism, resorts, um, health and fitness retreats, stuff like that. It's a big growing sector. And I get quite a few inquiries in that area. But actually, in, in, in my consultancy, kind of, he was my first main client, really, um, working mm -hmm. with him. It started three years ago, then it probably finished about two years ago. The start of COVID was when he actually opened up. Yeah, I was out there, I think, last, maybe last, not, not the, I think 2020, October, and they were kind of just opening up the Onsun. But, I mean, it was mm -hmm. the only one kind of around here. We have another one up the road here. I forget the name. Hans, do you remember the place? It's the owned by the Russians. Oh, I go there all the time, but they have a nice, like, it's more just a cold bath and a, and a steam room. Um, anyways, let's jump. Let's take a step back. Sure. And a, as we do on the Fruiting Body podcast with people in Thailand, we're going to uh, connect their journey to you and see if there's some sort of, you know, Easter eggs or nuggets you can take from that. So let's go back to Jack Thomas as a, a young boy in Bristol, UK. <laughs> well, I was born in 1982 in, in Bristol, um, fairly normal upbringing, I guess, uh, kind of into health and fitness or more just sport, really, as I was growing up, not, not necessarily health and fitness. I played a lot of football, played a lot of basketball, um, then went off of that and got into partying and going out yeah. and everything else and kind of left all the health stuff to one side, um, gained a bit of weight. While I was going through the, the, that, the that weekend warrior well. took, took over, yeah, yeah, weekend warrior as in going out and partying, not weekend warrior <laughs> as in as in training. No. The whole weekend warrior phrase has kind of taken on a new um, new meaning recently yeah. with like training hard, doing triathlons and stuff like that. Mm. So I kind of got off health and fitness for a bit. Then I came traveling to Thailand. Well, let's take it back a step. So I was working for a bank. Yeah. So in terms in of like your your university, uh, I read you went you you were getting into banking. So I'm assuming you went for finance and well, yeah, banking sounds probably a little bit. I mean, it's true, but that probably sounds a little bit 
fancier than it was. I wasn't really paid very much money. It was retail banking, so it was actually in the branch. So okay. basically, first as a cashier, then it was like setting up accounts, yeah. and then my title was account manager, but even then it was just a fancy title for a sales yeah. person, really. So let's take it back a little bit further. So I left school at 16. Um, I left home at 16 as well to go and live on my own. So that just felt like the right path. School didn't really quite feel right for me at that time. And let's say I wanted a bit more freedom and a little bit more independence. Mm -hmm. So left home and started working retail jobs. So first worked in Ikea, then I worked in Gap, uh, H&M for a little while. And then I was actually applying for an overdraft and the manager at the bank was, oh, we're looking for cashiers and we want sort of young people such as yourself, why don't you apply? And I was like, wow, me in a bank, that sounds great. Yeah. So I, I applied for the job, got the job. Um, this is like 1999. And I was super happy for a year. I saw that as a, a good potential career with a big well-known company. They had their headquarters in Bristol as well. So I thought, oh, this is awesome. You know, the opportunities that will be here. I'm kind of set for life is what I thought. After about a year or so, I really started to become disheartened and disenfranchised with the whole corporate culture. Specifically, it was just how we were basically forced to sell financial products to people that di really didn't need them. And that was clear and obvious to and see. Were you, were you doing kind of that typical, like even in Canada, I'm sure in the UK, you got to get up at seven, six, seven in the morning, oh, you're yeah. driving 45 minutes to work in traffic or how was yeah. that experience? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, 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 for a few years I lived like near work, but yeah, it's, the classic corporate nine to five lifestyle, right? You know, alarm goes off at seven, you know, it's freezing cold, <laughs> you walk to work. Uh, towards the end, when I knew I was coming to Thailand, I actually moved in with my grandparents. And so I used to cycle in, it was about a 45 minute cycle right into town. And I just remember it being bitterly, horribly cold mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And at that stage, I really was like, fuck this, I can't wait to get out. But yeah, it was all of that, right? It was the classic nine to five, Monday to Friday, you know, Sunday evenings, you're depressed because, you know, you've got work the yeah. next day. Wednesday, you start getting pumped. By Friday afternoon, life is good again. And it's just that continuous cycle. Yeah, I think um, most of the guests that come on the show, they have the same story in terms of like stuck in that. I don't know if it's an, a negative loop or, or just it's just something they don't want. And then you decide yeah. to get out of it. Um, and, and similar to your story as well. Now, you made the decision to come to Thailand in 2003. You're at the bank in 1999. When was that kind of aha moment to make the leap? And was it just to go for traveling? Or can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, well, as I became more disheartened with what, what I was doing at the bank, then I just, I don't know, I had one eye open at what else I could be doing, right? And I remember once this guy came into the bank and because one of the cool parts of the job towards the end as an account manager is people would come in, I'd basically review their finances and try and sell them a load of shit they didn't need along the way, loans, credit cards, stuff like that. But you actually got some really interesting conversations and some really interesting people that came in. And one guy came in and he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving to Japan. He was about the same age as me. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm teaching English. I was like, how do you do that? So I was like, you know, I got a degree and you need a degree to do it. I was like, damn, I don't have a degree, so I can't do that. But I was like, man, that just sounds magical to me. Like the whole idea of going to Japan, Tokyo, wherever it was, and like living there, teaching English, I just thought that sounds incredible. And I think part of that feeling came from my dad. So he traveled in Thailand in the 70s. Mm -hmm. He traveled in India, in Australia. And when I was growing up, he just had tons of stories about all sorts of crazy stuff that he got up to. And I think that kind of sparks my interest in doing something like that. It just sounded so appealing. And I think if someone, if he said to me, oh, I can get you a job in, in Japan, join me. I think I would have just quit there and then on the spot, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, he said you need a degree. You know, I thought, okay, well, I can't do that. But it just sort of like opened my eyes to what I could do. Then I was supposed to go on holiday with my friends to Florida. 
to Disneyland and with his family and do a few things like that. And it got cancelled last minute. And I had a friend that was travelling in Thailand. And I was like, fuck it, I'll just go and visit my friend, Zach. So sent him a message, met up with him, took a friend over from the UK as well, and just had the most amazing... Where did you land first? And <sighs> Wow, landed in Bangkok. Can you... Can you uh you know, uh, recapture that, that experience as well. Like that trip of where you kind of jumped around, especially cause like everybody on their first time in Asia, usually that first trip is the most memorable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it really was. So we arrived in Bangkok. I mean, I was pumped. I was excited. I had my lonely planet, you know, this is before phones yeah. or anything like that. Right. I think my friend had, had lent me his lonely planet, um, arrived, got a taxi straight to Kosan road, which is where our friend told us to stay and you get out and it's just that like assault, on the senses, right? The smells, yeah. the lights, the people. Like Tuk Tuk driver spotted us a mile off, right? Two British guys stepping out the taxi, yeah. like wide-eyed. So they like launched themselves at us. Like, yeah, go and go here, go to this club, go and see these girls, come and buy this suit. And we were just like- show, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff, right? And we were yeah. just so taken in by it all. And so like, um, just so pumped and excited to be in such a crazy environment. And it was kind of, going to Kozan Road then was kind of everything that I thought Asia was, you know, all the neon lights and everything else. It just kind of like takes that box so and this would have been kind of, i think this would have been around the same time that the movie the beach probably came out as well did you can you recall if that was a part of the travel experience like seeing that movie and wanting to kind of experience something similar yeah i mean partly i mean th that kind of added to it i guess just kind of mm. added to the mystique and to the legend of bangkok and thailand and everything else and I don't know if it specifically did, mm -hmm. but it kind of contributed to it, I guess. So um, luckily, before the tuk-tuk drivers dragged us to here, there, and everywhere, my friend uh, contacted us. He wasn't in Bangkok yet, but we, we I think it was by email, something like that. He was like, look, don't trust the tuk-tuk drivers. Don't go where they say. They're just trying to trick you. Gave us a few kind of like warning signs. So we had a few nights in Bangkok, had an amazing time. He then came up to Bangkok to meet us, our friend, and he'd already sort of got the lay of the land in Thailand. Then we took like an overnight train and even that was just like a magical experience, right? The overnight train, you kind of go past sort of the slums and stuff in Bangkok and just so different to anything I'd seen in the UK. It was just, yeah, just amazing. And you meet so many cool travelers, you meet so many people from different parts of the world. And were you embracing it all? Like, was there oh, any yeah. part of you that, you know, you, you, you can miss a meat pie or, or, you know, the taste from home or maybe things no, were too intense all. or you kind of took it all in. No, no, it was just, it was just such fun. It was just magical. It was just so, so different. And I remember one of the things that I really liked was that anyone that you met would be really open. You could just chat to them. And I'm like back in Bristol, it's not like this, right? Everyone just keeps themselves to themselves. And this is, this is different. This is the kind of environment I want to be in for a while. So had the most amazing two weeks, did the whole full, full moon party thing, which I wasn't actually as keen on, but I had some, areas of Kopenyang, which which I really liked, sort of towards the north of the island. And that was one of the first times I did shrooms, actually. Yeah. When you mentioned you had a shroom company, that was the first yeah. thing that, that I, I thought yeah, about. Yeah, everyone thinks that. When I say, <laughs> yeah, we do medicinal mushrooms, they all think it's psychedelics, but obviously not because it's it's illegal, but uh, maybe in the future. Um, so you went to Kopenyang, and you, was this your first psychedelic experience, or...? I think it was, you know, experimenting with other stuff yeah, back in the UK, but I think that was the and first or, time or doing in terms shrooms. of mushrooms, yeah. I think so. And yeah. can you remember that that I don't want to say that trip, but that experience? Yeah, um definitely positive. Definitely very positive. Um I remember it being like a very a very intense experience, like whether I close my eyes or whether I open my eyes. Yeah. Like very, very visual. And whenever I've taken anything before, I've always seems to be quite susceptible to and, it, and it's a long time well. ago as well it's really it's probably hard to remember i mean right? there were still specific things that i do remember i okay. remember closing my eyes and they're just being the most 
the most detailed, like finely yeah. detailed, intricate patterns you could possibly imagine. It would just like, I, I remember thinking at the time that I wish afterwards I could recreate it and draw it somehow just because it was just so detailed and so intricate. And it would like, it morphed into like a snake's head, but it was just the the intricacy and the, the, the level of detail and it was so amazing. And I was quite happy just as a bit of a show, just watching that for a while. And then when I opened my eyes, pretty much everything yeah. you see is something else. And I remember just being fixated on the moon. It, it was a full moon at the time. Yeah. Um, Cause we didn't, yeah, we, it was, I think it was the day before the day after the full moon party. And it felt like there was almost like a connection between the moon in my brain and I was staring at it and I actually was worried it might be like like staring at the sun it might be burning holes in my <laughs> eyes and that yeah. was the only time that I was a bit concerned by it but it all felt there was a, a connection with mm. the moon um and that, that's mushrooms it's kind of connecting you back to mother earth and yeah I try to stay away from the the whole hippy dippy you know uh the you know connecting to the universe to side of it side of it but essentially yeah psilocybin uh I've it's this I find the same thing it's uh, you, you connect much more i guess efficiently to different it could be anything even like uh um terence mckenna well he's on he's on the wall here one of our pictures up here he, he has a quote saying like magic mushrooms well not verbatim but magic mushrooms you get so connected to your reality that you can even connect to your dishwasher like <laughs> at a certain point well yeah another time this is also in Copenhagen a few years afterwards i remember the being connected with the air conditioning units you know yeah tips back and forth it's kind of like it's it's mm -hmm. breathing, right? Um, and I'm, I don't know how much of it actually is being connected to nature and how much of it is just trickery on the brain. And it's hard to put into words, right? I remember when, when I was connected to the moon, you know, as I said, it was, I almost felt like there were gods like beckoning me into the sky. That's the best way to, to describe it. And it's kind of sinister, but kind of not. It's, it's yeah. very hard to describe really to someone that hasn't Done Has, hasn't done them before yeah i mean but positive it was definitely a very positive experience yeah and, and, and a lot of people they'll they'll talk about bad trips or good trips but i think a lot of it's just more your mindset so if so. you're able to to stay positive it's usually not an issue yeah and just in control as, as yeah. well i think you know if you've never done anything before and then suddenly you do you know a ton of mushrooms then it's hard to really understand what's happening you can mm -hmm. to a certain extent i feel like you can control it and you can kind of stop it from becoming too bad or realize that okay i'm doing mushrooms this isn't real these aren't demons beckoning, beckoning me into the sky. It's right, well, just my brain. Let, let's let's jump ahead on that part there. So you're you're doing your travels. You're only there for two weeks, and you're kind of doing the typical um, backpacker route from you know your Bangkok, your Koh Samui's. I'm not sure if you came down to Phuket, Koh Phi Phi, just Pang Nang. Sorry, it's I haven't even left this island <laughs> in about oh my almost two years now. I think. Um, from there, you went back to the UK, and and let's try to connect bringing you back to uh, Thailand and getting involved in your business. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll just sort of quickly take you through the next step. So, you know, I wanted to stay in Thailand more than two weeks, but my friend wasn't really up for that. So I went back to the UK, walked into the bank, um, and I just walked through the door and realized pretty much straight away that this isn't what I want to do. You know, I actually remember looking around and just thinking, there's no way I'm staying here, like not a chance, and pretty much made a decision there and then to come out traveling to Thailand. So I gave my boss six months notice. I said, look, I'm going to save up money and, and, and leave and go traveling for six months. He was like, yeah, I could kind of see that's the direction that you were going in. And then just started relentlessly saving. I took on two jobs. So I was working in the bank in the daytime, working in a bar in, in, in the nighttime till about 2 a.m. most evenings. I went to live with my grandparents and was cycling in and out just to save as much money as I possibly could. And then came out traveling in 2000, at the end of 2003, it was. And so I was traveling for a few months. It was... Yeah, 
had an amazing time. Um, then I met some people that were teaching English in Bangkok. And I'd never really thought of living in Bangkok. It seemed like they were having a great time. I kind of saw it as part of the traveling experience to like work somewhere. So I thought, cool, let's give this a go and live in Bangkok for a few months. So I stayed for around, or I, I, I started working at a school, was there for around about six months or so. And then I started... But you were able to get in without de the degree or did you do the Kosan Road? I did the old... Uh, well, I actually had a friend that did a better than Kosan Road I think, version of I it. I mean, <laughs> even... We're trying to be quite politically correct on this podcast because I don't want to cross the Thai government and piss anyone off. But I think that one is okay. It's so open. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows this story. You can get these fake degrees on Kosan Road or fake IDs, but specifically the fake degrees to allow you to teach English in other countries. And um, I have a ton of friends that would come over here and then they would grab the d degree in Bangkok because Bangkok's famous for, for it, especially right. at Khao San. And then they would go teach English in like Taiwan or China. So are, you're, talk about that and how you took that on. Yeah, so actually I never had a, a full work permit anyway. Yeah. You know, I, at that time it was very loose. It was very relaxed. It's got a lot stricter and What year then. are we at at this point? This is 2004. 2004 so the beginning now. of 2004. Yeah. So I've done a few months traveling and I guess I kind of wanted something a little, a little bit more. And I looked into going to Australia and doing my working visa there, but I feel culturally it's a little bit too similar to England and staying in Asia definitely appealed to me. I mean, then I had no idea that I would still be here, you know, in 2021 talking to you. Yeah. So I did teaching for a while, um, only for about six months or so. And then I was actually in Chattuchak Market and saw some really cool like t-shirts that had really different designs, very Asian, like Japanese influence. And I thought, man, that's really cool. I haven't seen anything like that in the UK. I think that would sell really well. So just started selling a little bit on eBay and it just blew up. I mean, pretty much straight away, I just started selling, you know, making way more than I was in my teaching job. And out of respect to the guys that I worked with who were really cool and I got on really well with them, I saw out the final sort of three months, I think, of the school year. I was working in a school in, in Saturn called Bangkok Christian College and mm -hmm. living kind of right right next to the school. So out of respect to them, out of respect to the school and the kids and everything else, just finished that year and then just launched myself into the clothing thing. Directly in Bangkok, uh, this, this just selling product. Were you, now were you, you were so yeah, I was sourcing from here and then selling them just on That's eBay I, yeah. to start with. Yeah. Um, just the individual items I was listing, uh, selling them all over the world. Most of our clients were in the US, UK, Australia, but really selling them all over the place. And it just took off. It was I, I was lucky, I think, to find something that was truly like unique and different. Obviously the prices were a lot cheaper as Did well. Did that grow into anything in, in terms of like the e-commerce side or is it kind of just an, something that you were, you were making cash, you could survive off it? And where did that lead to? So at first um, it was just making more than teaching. So I was like, brilliant, I can quit teaching yeah. now. I don't really want to do that long term, right? So that was great. And then it, I mean, even through eBay, we were making pretty, certainly serious money for me at that that time, you know, multiples, multiples, yeah. what I was making, making teaching English. We did have like a, a website, but I wouldn't really call it e-commerce. It was just more to display our products for our wholesale clients. So after a while, we started getting wholesale inquiries. My best friend in, in Bristol in the UK came on as a business partner. So he then started approaching independent shops. And yeah, at one point it was going going very well. You know, the eBay stuff went well all the way through. And he was then selling from the UK. We had, um, he was distributing like uh, individual items and also wholesale yep. to um, clients and also shops in, in, in Bristol. And yeah, it was going, it was going great. I think I, looking back, I could have made 10 times what I made, like knowing what I know now. Yeah. But at the time it was going well. I, after a few years, I guess I got a little bit lazy. I had someone who was helping me out with the business and she used to take care of pretty much everything, all the deliveries and the packing. And it got to the stage where I didn't really have to do that much. 
you know, and I did sort of have it as a, a bit of a more of a lifestyle business, making good money, pretty much doing what I wanted to, traveling whenever I wanted to. I go back to the UK for like two or three months. And every the, the year. whole time, like once you've moved to Thailand, um, you were just based in Bangkok. Were you, let's say, would you do stints in the UK and for like a year, two years, and then come back, or were you kind of just yeah. doing the summers, see family, come back again, and and continue with that? So just the two or three months. Yeah, but you know, three months was like pretty much the whole yeah. summer, right? Yeah. Especially the British summer, which lasts about two, three months. Uh, uh, yeah, if, if you're lucky, right? <laughs> so I just go back in the middle of the summer and yeah. pretty much just have a great time, and the business would still sort of tick over, and like that was great until it wasn't. You know, around 2008, 2009, it sort of took a sharp downturn, mostly in line with, um, well, the global economic crisis, of course, yeah. but also the pound losing a lot of value, like massively, massively affected us. So yeah, in a lot like, of the people from, uh, you had a lot of expats from Singapore that were killing it in Singapore from the UK. Mm. And then when the pound got smashed, they just, you know, because they, they were kind of sitting on top of the world. I, I mean, I've heard stories of, of these expats in Singapore oh, yeah. pre, you know, 2008. And then after that, it's kind of... I mean, it, it was huge. And it, and it just... To see how it affected the business and to, to be so reliant, I didn't realize at the time, but to be so reliant on a number, which is basically bar to pound, I was very vulnerable to that happening. And I never never dreamed it could go as low as it did. In the good days, the glory days, it was about 75 bar to the pound and, you know, making really good money. I mean, without going crazy with my spending, I didn't really need to worry about, you know, I could go on holiday wherever I wanted, yeah. have a nice apartment and eat wherever I wanted, stuff like that. Definitely didn't do enough to sort of So did that kind of kill the business of the eBay side because of... That was uh, the biggest thing, yeah. So then like, we had to put our prices up. Yeah. You know, there was more com competition in the market for sure. Yeah. Some people were selling the same products, although we were still pretty much the only ones doing that and doing it properly. Um, but to be honest, the biggest thing that sort of killed it, I would say, is once business wasn't going as well, I just lost my motivation for it. I, I just couldn't put the energy and soul back into the business to really make it work again. The stuff that I really enjoyed, I started really resenting. I used to really love going to the markets of Bangkok, finding new designs, even like taking photos and sending it to our clients, our wholesale clients to see what they wanted. I used to love all of that. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I was like, I actually hate this now. Like I really... I really don't like going and doing this. It got too repetitive, I'm assuming, as well. Like, 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 um, especially I'm assuming that type of business. At that point, it's almost a commodity. Like, if you're selling like things that you can buy in Thailand, because well, anybody can. Just like today with people on Alibaba, if you're sure. if you're selling, uh, it could be like even these these statues here. Like, it's very right. easy to, to find and to sell. And there's a certain point where maybe it becomes a bit redundant. Yeah, sure. Actually, funnily enough, before the clothing, I was selling art and stuff like yeah. this. And that's really just truly a commodity. Anyone can walk into the market and get yeah. it. The stuff that we had and the designs we had and the range of like colors and stuff, we'd, we'd not, it was kind of a little bit, there was a bit of a barrier to entry that not, not many people could just go and find them and then sell them. We had different suppliers in different places. So if you wanted something with our look, we were probably the best place to come to. So I don't know if it was so much the repetitive thing. I think it was more not really believing in like the soul, the mission of the company, what we were doing, what our vision was, what our plans were for the future. It was just kind of became a way to make money. So when it wasn't going so well, it was hard to really find a big reason to sort of build it up again. And were there a lot of partners? Was it just your partner in the UK or were there more people involved at this point? It was me and my partner in the UK, okay. just two of but us. You guys were, you're getting along with that? Yeah, yeah, there was there. no issues there. It was there, just yeah. more... The, yeah, the, I think we were sort of lucky there. You know, I mean, I work with business partners now yeah. with my current business and there's, I've sort of learned a lot more through working with them than I did with my best friend. I think we were just sort of lucky, really, that we were both, I don't know, reasonable guys. Reasonable as a subjective thing, I guess. But I think we're both reasonable and we can both sit down and sort of talk if anything's not quite right or if people don't think things are fair. And so if ever there were any issues, we resolved those quite 
quite smoothly. So no issues there. He'd actually left the business by the time we closed it. He went to do uh, an MBA, uh, okay. MBA, master's, sorry. Yeah. Um, so he left the business already. So it was pretty much just me then. Um, and yeah, I just had, it was a, a crossroads. I was like, do I put my heart and soul back into this business? I was like, I don't know if I can really do that. It's not going to be authentic. It's not going to be me. I don't really want to do it. So that's going to be really hard, even though there is, you know, potential financial mm. reward there. And also you don't know how much more the pound's going to lose value. If anything else is going to happen. Thought about going to Australia, thought about going to university and getting the degree that I never yeah. got. And then decided to get into fitness. I was doing some football. Well, I, I read, uh, just to jump in on that, sure. I, I was uh, listening to one of your podcasts and, and conversations. And there was this point in time in which there, I, I believe it was, it's called, is it called California Fitness? Yes. In, in Bangkok. And that that is a good segue into to what you're doing now because you saw this opportunity. Do you consider yourself an opportunist or an entrepreneur? Um, or both. <laughs> It wasn't so much like, here's an opportunity, let's, let's expose it and let's, let's capitalize on it. So in that regards, I wouldn't consider myself like a true and absolute like entrepreneur. It was more like, this looks like an industry that I would get on well in. You know, this is something that I think I would enjoy. This is something I think I'd be quite good at. And I see an opportunity there as well. So it kind of makes a lot more sense. You know, if the opportunity had been in like pencils or padlocks or headphones or something i don't think i would have what, done what it. was it about uh, now let, let's jump back what year was this when so this when, would have been you, uh, 2011 you... was when i went back to the uk to officially start my career in fitness okay. and so it was about 2009 2010 which i started doing football coaching okay soccer coaching like part-time in addition to my clothing so, stuff. So, so the California fitness, this was in the UK or in Bangkok? So California fitness was probably the start of the fitness industry in its current form in Thailand. So it was okay. an American guy yes. called Eric Levine, yeah. very brash and loud. The company is, was very brash and loud. And they started around about the same time that I came to Thailand. So 2004, maybe 2005. Were they trying to be like a, a gold gym type? Something of? like that. Yes, okay. Something like that. I think he actually has a background with gold's gym. Okay. He opened one of the first ones in California or something like or that. Power so that's lifting, his, yeah, that's kind of his background <laughs> yeah but this was more like just in your face yeah you know um the massive speakers outside like blasting out house music you know guys with clipboards running around yeah very very sales focused they would try and tie you down to literally lifetime memberships oh so wow you'd be like, oh, yeah you know i want a month by month like why don't you get lifetime i think at the beginning it was about two thousand dollars then it went down to like a thousand dollars for literally lifetime membership of this place and in the end i think they were selling them for about five hundred dollars for lifetime well it sounds like this isn't sustainable right i'm assuming like that would more or less sound like, let's grab as much money as we can and let's close the company. Well, that's kind of <laughs> what happened. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't know the intricacies and it couldn't comment on that. But yeah, it's, yeah, it, yeah. it did close overnight pretty much. And people had bought lifetime memberships in the months and weeks leading up to it. Um, they've kind of left Thailand completely in a sort of cloud of distrust, you could say. Yeah. Um, so that kind of was a bit of a blow to the, to the fitness industry. And by then, by the time it closed, I'd already... Um, started working in the fitness industry. So you've, you've went home, you've done your certifications. Yep. Uh, we won't go too de deep into these certifications because oh. I've had many fitness people on as, as well. And uh, I mean, they're, they're, depending on what you want to specialize in, there's many different options, whether it's HIT, whether it's um, uh, CrossFit or, or, or whatnot. But specifically for yourself, what certifications did you focus on and why did you decide to go that route? I mean, I, I saw an opportunity in personal training. You know, I thought maybe group class fitness possibly, um, but wasn't really sure. But that was kind of the, the basics. So I just went back and got, it was called a diploma of personal training. It's yep. your level three standard certification in the UK. There was a few things that were tagged on. I think circuit training was one of the extra things you learned about. Got a nice little certificate for that. But, you know, to be honest, it just kind of gets you that very basic foundational level of, of knowledge, which is 
you know, good enough to, to be able to at least train beginners or intermediates, like so that you have this foundation. In yeah, I mean, I kind of had a foundation anyway because I was training myself and I was training yeah. my friends. It just kind of gave me a little bit of confidence, I guess. But to be honest with you, I, I came back. I started working for a small studio. I was doing outdoor boot camps, and we had a small studio on Soy Forty Nine in Bangkok. And I probably learned more in my first two weeks on the job actually doing it than I did during the whole certification. Let, let's um, one part. That it would in interest me and maybe the viewers as well is so you've you've went back you've done the certification and now you're working um, kind of uh, are you a PT at this point like at a gym or you're working for them? Yeah, so I was working like employed okay. by this studio. So, so my my question more is how did you find that connection? Did you find it from the UK? Was that already established before you went back home? And talk about that relationship. Yeah, so when I decided I once again to the fitness industry, I just. I'm the kind of person that will do a lot of research and find out exactly what's needed and what opportunities are there, who else is doing it, what do I need certification-wise. And so I kind of dug deep and asked a lot of my friends and two or three people referred me to a guy called Richard Cohen, who's still a friend now and was my boss for five years. And I just reached out to him, sent him an email. We had a chat. He was like, yeah, I think you'd be a good fit. Then I went to the UK to get my certifications. When I came back, he was like, yeah, coaches just left. So jump on, jump in. on in, mate. And <laughs> so that's, that's what I did. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like, let's say you're a PT back home, whether it's Canada, Australia, UK, US, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple to also make that leap and at least get your foot in the door in Asia and then from there grow your own business. Um, was right. there anything that that you hesitated on before you made that decision, you know, how we always question ourselves and, and, or, or were you always gun ho you're focused, you're ready to go. There was no kind of, you were never looking back. Um, I mean, everyone has moments of, of doubt, right? Yeah. I think I, I've always kind of had this feeling that if I, if I can see other people are doing it and they're just sort of regular people, like we all are, right. Yeah. I've always had this feeling of like, well, if he's doing it, I can do it. You know, it might take six months, it might take a year, it might take longer, but I can do it at least 80% as good as this guy is. Yeah. It was the same with the clothing thing. I actually saw someone else who was selling similar stuff on eBay. And I looked through, I looked at the copy, I looked at the images, and I was like, I, I can, can fucking do, do that, yeah. yeah. And so it was similar with, with training, really. I thought, well, you know, I'm, I know I'm a personable guy, I know I can connect well with people, I've always loved fitness. Um, I, you know, Academically, I'm not too bad, so I know I can pass the certification. So again, I looked at people that were doing well, and I'm like, if he can do it, I feel like I feel like I can. And so there's, yeah, that just sort of gave me a bit of self-belief, I think, that like, okay, I might not be there now, but I can definitely yeah, get there. Yeah, I mean, there. I think anyone making that leap, especially when you're going overseas, you always have, you know, you know those doubts. But um, I find like once you're kind of in the jungle, in the mix of it all, like it kind of takes over and it's, it's, not, it's not, not as difficult as you would have imagined. Yeah, I mean, yeah. For sure. I mean, I didn't, um, I'd already been living here, right, for, for like eight, seven, eight years. So it wasn't so much on going to a new land to yeah. like start something new. I felt pretty comfortable here, really. And if anything, that was maybe a safer option because, you know, this is the yeah, environment that I was comfortable Yeah, you had that safety in. net as well. And you, I felt you, kind of a little yeah. bit institutionalized yeah. by that stage, right? Like, can I even go back home? Like, would I even survive back there? So yeah, actually, when I got my certification, I did for a moment, a moment, consider staying in the UK. And I actually applied for a job there. Um, but that moment passed and I came back to Thailand. And yeah, you get that, that, tra the the travel, the travel bug um, living in Th uh, Asia or Thailand specifically. Yeah, I mean, I know now I'm never going to go back to the UK no, and, and, and live already, right. It's extremely uh, uh, Thailand, I, I will trade my Canadian passport for a Thai passport, <laughs> please. Just, One day you might get it. It's hard to get, but uh, you, you, you can get the do PR it. or some yeah. sort of residence. I decided I'm staying in Thailand. 
I told my parents, come find me. This is where I live. I'm not going back. Mm. That's enough of that. But anyways. Um, See, just to go back to what you were saying, I feel like I, I you know, you, you need that healthy sort of fear. And I think you need that, like, you know, can I do it? I need to push hard and make sure that I can do this. I need to, you know, study and apply myself 100%. But, you know, having that feeling of like, well, if that person can do it, why can't I? I feel like it's served me really well. And it's something that I try and pass on to the new coaches that come in. I mean, one of my favorite parts of the job now is training new coaches up and new members mm. of staff and kind of, giving them the tools to develop quickly that I didn't really get when I first came in the industry. The guys I worked with were amazing, but we didn't have a proper like training process, right? So I mean, let's, let's connect up before we jump all the way into base and, and sure. really dive deep into what is base and what you're all about and, and why you're different than most gyms. Cause I, I did look up and uh, try to see why you guys were so different and, and unique and how you won the uh, Asian gym of the uh, year award in 2018. So let's chat about that. But before we jump right into base, how did this idea, this concept come to fruition? Did you start at small studios and grow from there? Um, and this obviously would connect back to your first job where you're working five years with your uh, first boss in Thailand. Mm, so, yeah, let's talk for those, those five years. Yeah. So the industry was very young, very underdeveloped, very immature. You know, we were running park boot camps you know, with up to 15, 20 people, really lively, really fun, mostly expat. And we had this small studio that was very tucked out the way. It was kind of a converted office space. And yeah, we we're probably 98% expat, I would say, 2% Thai. And props to my old boss, Rich. He just kind of had a vision to do something a bit sexier and do something truly different in the market. There was a something called the Asia Fitness Conference that was every year in Bangkok. And educators from all over the world used to come and it was a really sort of inspiring environment you could see all the different concepts that were happening from around the world and Richard had a vision to do something like that in Bangkok and really was you know one of the pioneers of fitness for sure in Bangkok so it was his vision his dream he built it out I was part of the team and so part of like specifically for like hit and strength and conditioning and kind of getting away from the whole uh, I guess you hit essentially is CrossFit. CrossFit's kind of just the brand name of that. Is that correct? Is that the way? Yeah, if you, you want to get describe home, it. Yeah, I think high intensity interval training is one of the or hit is one of the most commonly misused terms. Really, yeah. it's just kind of an all encompassing word for like circuit training or yeah. CrossFit. But really, high intensity interval training should be short bursts of high intensity and then rest time and usually like a longer rest time. And that's something that we do at base. I'll just give you a quick example. Yeah. So on the bike, you might do 20 seconds as fast as you can yeah. and then a long 40 second rest. And that really allows you to recover properly to let your heart rate come down and then go 100% in that interval. So that that's really what high intensity interval training is. But it just uses this word it just encompasses basically anything, you know, running in the park here, jumping yeah. jacks here, doing some training at home here. But really, it's not actually high intensity. Well, I think with, with CrossFit, when they got involved, it kind of I think it confused the industry because mm. everyone would use this this term CrossFit CrossFit so freely. Right. But essentially, in their mind, they're probably just talking about circuit training. Well, CrossFit's another one, right? Like right. base gets called CrossFit, yeah. boot camps in the park get called yeah, CrossFit. So yeah. it's just another, these words just get used yeah. for everything, but actually they mean something quite specific, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, it was it was circuit training, it was strength and conditioning, personal training in group classes, you know, something similar to, you know, say like F45 or Orange Theory now, you could kind of, you know, compare it to. One of its key differentiators that they talked about a lot was it was, it was barefoot, no mm. machines, and it was kind of using your body as, as it was intended to be used. So it's kind of like some people's definition of functional fitness. So, you know, we'd use kettlebells, we'd do full body strength training, you know, some like animal flow type stuff on the ground, yeah, park boot camps, which would all be like body weight exercise. And that was kind of the, the concept for the lab is the and, name and of the gym. The lab. So this is the initial gym you're working for. And then as you're moving into developing base in your own company, did 
did the lab kind of, was it you guys were parting ways? Were you becoming a competitor or were you working together? Yeah, so I, I did leave that company. So I was there as coach, first of all. Then um, I was promoted to fitness manager after about a year of opening the lab. So I had a year in the small studio, which was called Total Body Training. Yep. And that was when it was like very sort of um, the primitive stage of the industry. The lab, absolute pioneer. First real true boutique fitness training um, studio. I was coach for a year, fitness manager. So kind of managing and recruiting coaches for a, about a year. And then Richard went to live in Australia. And so I became managing director. So I was you know, running most of the aspects of the day-to-day -day running of the company then um, for about two years before I left to set up base. And so what year does that bring us to? January 2016 okay. was the day that I resigned yep. from the lab Okay. Um, at the end of January and then started working full-time on base. So I'd already kind of had the idea. I knew it's what I wanted to do. You know, I think we'd got as far as the name by then. I don't think we quite had the location. And the, but I was the lab, does it still exist or? Yes. Still yeah, yeah. And do you guys get along? Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. We do. I mean, it's, it's situations like this are always difficult, right? But I mean, there's always enough pie for everybody, especially in an industry that's growing so rapidly and exponentially. He, he, I would assume that they wouldn't even be able to take on as many clients that were coming in, especially with the ties now that they're so in tune to this type of uh, training. Um now let's jump into the whole entrepreneurial side of creating base and starting from day one scratch. What's going through your mind? Are you building a business plan, a business proposal? You're trying to put your investors pitch deck together. Did you fund this all yourself? Um, I mean, I understood you were working on the, um, you, holistically on the operations, whether it's from sales to marketing, but I mean, from finance and accounting to investors, to banking, to opening companies, the whole administrative side, a lot of new entrepreneurs, they, they never have tackled that before. And usually that's those details are where it gets quite difficult. So that was a bit long winded to explain what I, I'm looking to hear from your side. But let's step back to that day one when you're ready to even go pen to paper and start building this business proposal. What's going through your mind? What's your process? Best place to start, I think, is by saying that I felt really ready. I was like, well, I've been running this facility for a while now. I'm a recognized coach. I know the industry well. I know people that are potential investors. Are like, man, I'm the best person to do this. I'm super qualified. And I sort of realized quite quickly, especially after we opened, that I just had, like, so much to learn. And that was really, like, a pivotal moment because I, I thought I'm the very best person to do this. Maybe I w was at that time, right? But... I, after I had the realization that, man, I've so much I've got to learn and the opening was a little bit slow to begin with, you know, I was like, it kind of made me realize that I've got, on, I've got to be on a constant journey of learning and progression, mm -hmm. like even now, right? Because we want to grow and we want to open more locations and there's things I, I don't know now that I'll need to know. So that was kind of a, a bit of a realization that like, okay, maybe I'm well placed to do this, but man, I'm, I'm not as prepared as I, as I thought I was. But maybe having that initial confidence was a good thing. How long did it take from uh, the initial concept to the doors opening? So I left in January. We'd already started like thinking about it and I'd already pitched to a few investors by that point. Yeah. To be honest, pretty much everyone I asked was, was up for, for being a part of it. I think because of the experience that I had in the industry already in Bangkok, I think just my, my passion for it, you know, the vision I had for the company. I mean, a lot changed actually from those initial pitches. I think, I think that's an interesting topic as well. Um, for anyone looking that to start a business, I mean, you can always have an idea, you can put it together, but Bringing your idea to investors and, you know, performing your pitch and closing that deal, I mean, that's a big milestone in the, the life of the company. What was your process in terms of reaching out to investors? Because I'm assuming, obviously, with the gym, there's a lot of expenses, uh, overhead in the equipment initially. So it's, you're going to have high costs. So 
when you took that on, and, and again, you don't have to answer it if you don't want in too much detail, but more or less like your process on like, okay, I'm ready to go, but I need investors now. This is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm, who I'm going to talk to. And, um, this is my, my strategy to close those deals. And obviously you don't have to name names or anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to, to, to speak about it openly. So <clears throat> I had a, a kind of an unofficial mentor at the time that was actually a client. And so when I decided I wanted to do this, he was just the obvious first person to ask. And yeah. he's the other biggest shareholder of the business. He's still with us to this day. And he was actually working with the company for a few years as well. So, you know, he was the first obvious person to ask. He kind of encouraged me, not necessarily to open my own thing, but just to know my value, know my worth, know that I can do something special in the industry if I put my mind to it. And, and that kind of, you know, was the first step to having confidence to doing this. So basically asked him, he was in. Okay, great. You know, great start. I had another client who I just got on really well with. His He comes from a, a sort of quite a strong, wealthy background. He grew up in Hong Kong. Um, just walked into the lab one day and I just started chatting to him and I ended up training him as well. And we become good friends. And he was based in Hong Kong and I was there visiting just on a trip and just booked a lunch with him. And, and just these guys were just gung-ho there. Hey, you know, this much. is a great <laughs> idea. <It's, laughs> yeah. But I think that the reason I'm asked that question, because I'm sure a lot of people that are looking to start a company, that's their biggest fear. Um, cause immediately when you put pen to paper and you see what it's going to, the startup costs, it's quite high. And unless you <clears> kind of have secured those investors, it can be a bit discouraging to even, you know, kickstart. I think there's a, you know, just my experience in the industry certainly helped as well. And I knew these people, so it made it easier. I knew yeah. that they kind of believed in me. Um, so that kind of made it easier as well. And I think everyone wants a piece of a gym, right? <laughs> to be honest, like if you come in and you say, yeah, I want to do something big in Bangkok's fitness industry. I've got this big vision. You don't need to really say much more. I want to do something really different and really special in Bangkok's fitness industry. Do you want in? Most people are like, yeah, all right, <laughs> to be honest. I had a lot of people that asked that I didn't really bring anything to the table. So all of the partners that I asked, I felt had something extra that they could also bring to the table as well, whether it's through contacts and connections or business experience. Maybe they can you know, introduce us to the right person at the right time. So I was quite fortunate to be able to be quite picky. Not to, I mean, I think it's got maybe a little bit harder now with everything that's happened with COVID. I think mm -hmm. with gyms opening and closing, people are realizing it's not easy to do. I think then there was a lot of gyms opening up and it was just, a, a, to be honest, it's a sexy proposition. Well, when you, when you're, you're saying you're bringing in um, the right key people to kind of uh, capitalize on your weaknesses at that point in time, when you were getting, when you're getting started, where did you feel that you were the most weak in terms of whether it's on the business side or, or just uh, in, in general? I mean, the training side, I was kind of much more comfortable with, yeah. right? And so in terms of like the concepts, although we hadn't quite put it together, but at that time, I just felt quite comfortable doing that. So, and I didn't really require any help from the partners. It was more just in the business side. Yes. How do you set up a company? You know, how do you set yeah. up the accounts? You know, what do we need to do in terms of visas, stuff like that? Um, construction was a big one. And so the, the other, his name's Tara, the, the, my other biggest partner and my first kind of mentor going into this business, he had a background in retail. So he had a share in a big retail company. And a shop fitting. Kind yeah, of. exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's really all, all, all yeah. our gym is, right? It's just but that, a shop. That's very important too, because if it's not aesthetically pleasing, I mean, it's like trying to rent out a condo or a home or a villa. When you walk in, it's got to be like, Bang, sure. stunning. Yeah, and absolutely. Like sold, I mean. And that's what we wanted to do. It yeah. doesn't necessarily need to be that. Like a lot of CrossFit boxes won't be that at all. And a lot of small personal training studios won't be that. But that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to make a real statement. We wanted to make impact. We wanted to build a gym that would look great in London, would look great in New York. That was kind of one of our big underpinning values of the company. So yeah, it had to look great as well. And to be honest, I wouldn't have really known where to start with something like that. And he had an interior designer that he'd worked with on his retail stores. His retail stores look really great as well. 
looks very slick and aesthetically pleasing. Just even in terms of like, where should the bathrooms be? How should the flow of the space be? And, you know, he was fantastically helpful in that first one. You know, after that, I felt more comfortable with that process. So he certainly helped out in the second and the third. But I felt, especially in terms of layout, like where the bathroom should go, where the entrance should be, what the flow of the customers should be, where do they wait, where do you drop the towels, where do you buy the water, where do you check yeah, in? Yeah, they save you a lot of headache from making those initial mistakes because they've experienced that, so you can kind of you know fast-track that uh, much quicker. Mm. Um, the other partners were more who they know, really. Yeah. So bringing in the right people. They brought in a lot of friends that just bought big packages at the beginning. They bought big packages themselves. They're from like fairly well-known like Thai business families, so was good potential connections there and like on the media side they've helped with, with that as well actually the first location that we had one it had kind of reached a sticking point with negotiations in terms of price to the point where we just can't afford this but we really want this spot we really want this location and so again, they all kind of move in the same circles right so one of our uh, one of my business partners he knew the nephew of the ceo yeah. of the company and so got an introduction, we sent an email, it took about two or three weeks to even get any kind of response back, very, very slow, but eventually things started moving and we got the price that we wanted to get. Now that just wouldn't have been possible without having yeah, him I mean, on board. That, that's it, your, your network is your net worth, right? Yeah, we wouldn't, have, yeah we wouldn't have got that and base would have taken a different direction. So right? when you, you've started you've started base, um, I'm assuming more, the, the, the way that you're describing it is you were way more heavily focused on branding than marketing. Is that, yes. Was that a correct assumption to make? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And to be honest, at the beginning, I wouldn't have even really known what the difference was. <laughs> like, but, oh, but, but looking back, yeah. sure, yeah. But at the, at the time, I, I, I didn't really know, you know, my branding, marketing, sales, I don't know, I sort of lumped it in the same yeah. area. But yeah, looking back now, for sure, focusing very much on the brand experience. You know, we invested into getting the brand done from a really solid agency that we still work with now and who sponsor the, the podcast that I run as well, my agency in the UK. You know, they built a beautiful brand and not just a brand, but also kind of taught us how to apply it. And then I started to see the connection more between the brand assets, right? Like the logo and everything else. And then the actual like experience, the idea that the brand is an accumulation of all the touch points that you have with the brand. So how they get welcomed when they walk into the studio, the towels that they get, the towel has base on it, kind of imprinted into the towel, right? The sound system, like all of this makes up what the brand is. You're checking off these boxes, very similar to the difference uh, from establishing what is a five-star resort and a three-star. There's certain boxes you need to check. There's certain boxes and the accumulation of all of that yes. is that feeling that you get and yeah. you feel special to be there, right? Yeah. And, and, and they're so small. I mean, it's it's these subtle nuances and it, you know, it hides in the details, but I mean, it makes the difference of that experience at the end as well. Absolutely. How yeah. did you, um, um, from the beginning, your mission, your, your vision of what BASE was going to be? One, how did you come up with the name BASE? And two, um, what was your mission and goal right from the beginning? Was it always in hit and strength and conditioning or did that pivot at any point? Yeah, so tackling one at a time. So first the name, hey, yeah, man, it took just so long to get to that stage. <laughs> I've got notes still in my phone now of like literally 500 different words. Yeah. I think at one stage I was just going through the dictionary, like hoping the right one would jump out. It's, it is, sometimes it's easy and sometimes people just know. And some of my consultant clients now, they're like, yeah, I want to call it this because they've always wanted to call it that. And it's in line with, with the you know, what the company is all about. And but base, base Bangkok, it sounds... It does sound cool, yeah. So first week, we, man, it took a long time. We actually settled on a different name, um, but it never really quite sank in with me. I got it signed off by the shareholders. What was it? It was Space. Space. And the reason was, was we were kind of all about open space, mm. like freedom of movement. We w didn't plan to have any machines in, like any cardio machines at the very, very beginning. And we kind of got that all signed off. But, 
you know, I'd been to some concepts in New York that I really liked that they incorporated cardio machines into the workout. No one else was doing it in Bangkok. And that was kind of how I trained, doing high intensity interval training on bikes, rowing machines those, and treadmills. What are those bikes? Assault bikes. Assault yeah, or air bikes. God, air I hate bikes. these things. Yeah, they're, they're kind of brutal, but oh. they, they do a good job yeah, in oh. terms of interval training. Yeah. And so, so the name never really quite captured me. And also it wasn't really relevant anymore. It wasn't really relevant to our concepts. Before someone said, oh, why space? It's like, oh, because we believe in freedom of movement in open space. Mm. Well, now I can't say that because it's not what our concept Well, base was. sounds stronger. It's more For masculine. Sure. It sounds like it has a foundation space. Yeah, it does sound a bit like up in the air. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I think through yeah. the branding process, we could have changed that. And there's actually a very well-known gym who we've you know become friends with, Space Yoga and Space Cycle in, 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 in Taiwan. And well, I think that works with yoga. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're actually branching out into other yeah. things as well. So, you know, probably good that we didn't do it because they're going big in China now and they might expand to other countries as well. So that might have been a little bit awkward. So, yeah, I wasn't really sure. And I was speaking to a friend of mine and I told him I wasn't sure. And he's like, well, what else have you got? So I pulled up the note in my phone, which is probably still there. And I was literally just reading them one by one. And I got to base and he was like, base. Yeah, yeah, base. I like that. Let's go back to base. And I was like, fuck yeah, that sounds good. I like it. I like it. But I remembered at the time one of my business partners kind of dismissed it. And it, I remember us having the conversation. I actually found it on our WhatsApp chat. You know, I said bass. I quite like this. He was like, I think he said something about it being like a low, you know, for times they might see it as like feet or low. Mm. And so that was his concern. And he very much sort of like dismissed it. And so I just put it to one side. And that night I was just thinking like bass, bass. I couldn't sleep. 2 a.m. I got up and just searched if there was any other gyms called bass. I wanted to know the actual meaning of it and see if there could be a negative connection with it perhaps and was pretty much decided that the next day it had to be base um pictures to the shareholders they were okay and one thought that it needed something a little bit more and so we went down this rabbit hole of like base and a number base something and in the end i was like no fuck it i'm the one who's got to talk about this day in day out it's base and everyone's like yeah okay yeah and and we had this agreement symbol. from day one that you know ultimately i was going to be the one who sort of signed it off and made the decisions. Um, but, you know, they would sort of contribute. And over time, it's become even more like that. They're not really very involved at all. And it's, you know, it's pretty much down Well, somebody's got to steer the ship, right? You can't, sure. you can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. For sure. And I kind of saw that early on. I mean, I was trying to pull them into everything. So during the branding process, you know, what do you think of this color? What do you think of this font? And I just sort of, to be honest, I don't think they really wanted to be that involved. Yeah. And it just got a little bit messy and a little bit confusing. And I, I've kind of realized now that when you're going through that process, have a few trusted people. Like I'm talking about two or three people that just you Just to ask. bounce a few ideas off of before you make that decision. Yeah, but also specific people that can give you like that objective opinion. Someone yeah. who can say, you know what, I don't like it, but actually I think it's perfect for your target audience, right? If they're able to say that, then ask them. If they're going to be like, oh, no, I don't like it. Or at least like articulate their, their opinion into detail instead of just like very, you know, a blanket statement. Yeah, yeah. And it, well, you, you get a lot of emotion. I think the worst thing you can do, and you see this a lot, is like you put it on Facebook. Oh, which logo should I have, guys? And it's like A, B, C, or D. And it's yeah. like A, B, C. And everyone's like voting underneath. Well, ten, ten people just because, vote. <laughs> well, yeah, but even if 100 people vote, yeah, just yeah. because 60% vote for C doesn't necessarily mean C is the right logo. Who are right. these people? Do you want to go for that safe one that everyone gravitates towards? Or do you want to go for something a bit more risky? Yeah. So you know if you say what color should i have for my business and you ask 100 people it's 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 irrelevant i think and it can send you down the wrong path and it's yeah just not the way to go at all so yeah i kind of realized it's good to have those few good trusted yeah. people one of them was the guy in the branding agency you know one of my best friends in bristol you know i spoke to him one of them's my girlfriend because she's in this mm -hmm. area as well so she would give me her sort of honest opinion yeah, and I, then was, a couple others. I was li listening to that on that side in terms of uh so all your marketing you're doing in-house yep but your branding initially you did out outsource in terms of like the brand glide guidelines the design a little bit of direction um are you still working with them or yeah. and, and i think the reason i'm asking that question is just not 
for fun. It's more for anyone looking to get into any type of business. Um, the people that get involved, how long do they stick with you? What should you bring in house? And specifically for the fitness industry, can you talk about that? Yeah, so the branding process was something that I'm glad we invested into. You know, it was a lot of money at the time. My friend did me a, a good deal, really. Branding's it, not cheap. I mean, I've been we doing some branding and I'll just jump in quick on that. And I've oh. reached out to a lot of people. I ended up doing everything in-house. It's still, there's a couple of tweaks and changes we're going to make. Um, but I've talked to some friends that are, you know, they work with Adidas or Nike and they were quoting me at like 30, 40, even 50 grand US. Mm. And I'm like, I had, I had no idea this is what branding cost because um, because i've never gotten to the, the retail the e-commerce side and holy shit it's branding it's, if you have the money it, yeah. it's worth investing into right for sure and I, I i've seen some great brands where they've been like oh i just did it on microsoft paint and look it's fine it does the job fine and some of them i think look okay and they do the job and that some of them are even good i would say but most of them aren't and i think it's 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 a place that i heard a consultant once a fitness consultant saying like, oh you don't need to spend ten twenty thousand dollars on branding you can just go to 99 designs and get someone to no. do it and i thought that's the worst advice that's ever. the worst advice yeah i mean it might be right for someone if they want to set up a small personal training studio it's just going to be them at the beginning yeah fine maybe that maybe that works yeah, right? i tried i think i lost five hundred dollars on 99 designs of just shit and then eventually my friend he lives here he's well he's stuck here he works in china but he did our logo and me and him went back and forth, but he's an actual designer. Mm. So like every, this is like hand designed and that compared to anything on 99 designs right. is like day and night. Like it just but looks so clip, clip arty. Yeah, absolutely. Well, also yeah. I think it's this understanding that a brand is more than just a pretty logo. Yeah. You, know, you might go on 99 designs and to be honest, most of those guys have probably got a hundred templates and they just tweak it. Right. So your word, no, and you might, go, oh, that looks they good. They might have AI computers just like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's going you, that way. You can right? do that now with the, some generated logos, but yeah. Yeah. Um, on okay, so ju jumping back to to why base won the two thousand and eighteen um, uh, gym of the year award for all of Asia. Now, does that include China, Taiwan, Japan, or yes. is it just so South Asia? Uh, just just yeah, the whole of all whole of Asia. Asia yeah. Um, what type of metrics are brought into those decisions? I read that it's a voting side and also you have a panel of judges, so it's like a sixty forty percent, just so it's much more spread and fair. Um, specifically, what are they looking for? And you don't need, I'm sure there's hundreds of, uh, pieces of criteria, but what are like those, those top five that where you guys stood out, stood out that, you know, the reason probably why you won? Well, most of it came down to the judges. I mean, we, we knew this was awards going on. So we submitted sort of base, didn't really think much of it at the time. Um, because you know, we were a relatively new gym. We'd had two years of operation, but I think we'd already made an impact. We'd already opened our second location. We'd already started working on our technology. So we had a lot of cool stories, I think. And we already, I think we, no, we hadn't quite started the podcast yet, but we were already relatively well known in the fitness industry around Asia. Like people sort of new of us. So I thought, well, let's, let's apply and see what happens. Then we got shortlisted for the award. Uh, with that, sorry, we submitted um, a lot of information on like our operating procedures, uh, the way that we run the gym, um, the uh, like concept and how we came up with it, how we recruit coaches, like a whole load of information on basically how we run the business. So I think that kind of provided the foundation of it. The second part was the judges, right? So they would look for everything that we submitted. But then also, I mean, I don't think any of them had been to base. Maybe like one or two of them had been. They might have heard of base. But I think what won it for us was the work that we put into our online presence. You know, Instagram was looking slick. Uh, we'd had a lot of positive PR. We'd invested a lot into that from the beginning. We can dig into any of this. Yep. You know, we've been featured in, you know, Elle Magazine, Thailand, and Men's Health Magazine, even Men's Health UK. We had a video with them. And I'm and sure I think at that point you're just getting on the phone. Yeah, like well, call, well, you know, because journalists, they, 
they can be a bit lazy but For sure. as long as you contact them and yep. and you put pressure you only need one to say yes and then one magazine picks it up and that content gets curated and boom bob's your uncle we had a pr company we were working with and that was like a good start and then you yeah. realize that what you said is very true if you can pitch them with something cool or a cool video it actually was a friend of ours that was freelance providing video content for men's health. And he was in Bangkok. And I was like, do you want to do any content at base? He was like, yeah, that'd be great. So we did some live stream stuff for men's health UK. And then some videos that you can- Yeah, for them, because then they're like, now. sweet, I don't have to do any research. This oh, is exactly. on the plate. I just got to show up and put the piece it together. Well, yeah, one of them yeah. was like nine slam ball exercises. So, mm. you know, these slam balls that you can throw hard against the ground. And he just did nine slam ball exercises, filmed it base, sent it through to them. He did all the men's health branding and everything. And that, boom, that's a video that they can put up, right? Yeah. That's content that they would other, otherwise pay a few thousand pounds for someone in London well, and to do. Which is very, very important too. I, I actually, I come from an old school SEO background. So I was like doing black hat stuff in like 2005. So what's very interesting about that when you talk about it and people need to understand the importance of PR. So you could have, you could have Instagram and, you know, uh, 500,000 followers and a YouTube channel and this and that. But if you really want to drive traffic to the website, you need reputable websites that link back to you such as men's health because that's actually how the algorithm works mm. basically it's like a u.s electoral electoral voting system meaning that if uh men's health links back to you right and let's give it uh we'll give it a page rank of i don't know 80 right uh, on a scale of one um, zero to a hundred and they, they have a they have a page rank of 80 so they're very reputable their domain authority is high and they link back to you you could have 80 other websites with a page rank of one, and that would not even equal to the value to push you up in the search engine compared mm -hmm. to that one. That and, and people need to understand that when you get into the P, why PR is so important. Absolutely. It's the people that are basically giving you the thumbs up and saying, hey, we, we trust them, you should trust them, and that's what tells Google okay, then we should trust them. It's changed a lot, right? SEO, yeah. and it's good to understand this stuff. And I think it's gone even further now that if it's oh, a yeah, really yeah. poor quality website, yeah. it will actually de-rank you, yeah. right? That's just one aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, you know, it's um, it's important to be linked to by Men's Health UK, yeah. by GQ Thailand. Absolutely. You know, we did a whole video series of GQ Thailand. So every time they put a blog post on their website, we were always insistent that our link was in there yeah. as well. So again, when I mean, now when you, we've only been around for five years, which isn't that long in the fitness industry in Bangkok. If you Google Gym Bangkok, if you Google Personal Training Bangkok, group class fitness bangkok were usually the top hit for that right or in the top few hits for like pretty much any fitness term and that's because we've been doing all of this positive pr so my feeling is i mean you'd have to ask the judges as to why we won but my feeling oh yeah is, sorry we got to yeah. well, when we clip this later that's a big cut you're gonna have to put that together <laughs> okay when we yeah. won the, the award I, I can only think it was because the judges saw our online presence was so strong saw that a gym in asia was being shown in men's health uk and had such strong representation you know within the, the media in, in, in asia you know our website looked very slick it represented very well what we did that correlated very closely to the application that we've put in and you know we won it we didn't really expect to we went to the awards in jakarta you know i even wondered if maybe it was like rigged or something like that i didn't know anything about how it was organized or anything else and yeah last award of the night gym of the year they read our name and so are, that was are there cool. other awards like this in asia or is this one is it only out of jakarta asia asia gym of the year or because again essentially uh, i i can fruiting bodies asia gym of the year so you know <laughs> yeah, what i mean right, like yeah. anyone can do it so are, are there other is like and, and forgive me because I'm asking, sure. it's like how reputable are these awards in terms of Asia? Like what, I, I think more, I, my question is specifically, what does that do for the, the business and how does that advance it? 
Yeah, too. I mean, how reputable is it? It's the main awards here, but it's basically just a company that's okay. Done so, it so it is, but it's still the main awards that yeah, everyone's. Yeah, I don't know of any at. other like clear ones. The only other yeah. one they had was ClassPass, which is an aggregator where people would have a ClassPass membership and they can join Base, they can join all the other studios around Asia. Yeah. They had an award as well. I think that was purely votes, and we won that one as well. That was for Bangkok's best studio. That's the only other award that I know. Would of they even. take the Muay Thai gyms into consideration as well, or just because you're you have to be on ClassPass? You're on a different level. ClassPass one. So like Asia's gym of the year. They have to apply. I think it was one or two Phuket gyms that might have maybe like Unit Twenty Seven. I think something like that. Or, yeah. Or uh, I forget who else is down there. Tiger Muay Thai or something might yeah. have been one of the shortest maybe, yeah. ones for Thailand. I, yeah. I, I believe. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So yeah, fairly reputable. They're they're a company that has set up this awards. But I think that the judges. I think the fact that it was so the class pass one was votes, right? So we did the usual thing, asking all our clients and friends to vote. They voted. We won. Okay, great. For me, the Asia Gym of the Year has more. Um, power behind it because it's um, judges, right? These are people who are in the industry. They know the industry. I don't know any of them. So they've, you know, off their own backs chosen base. So I think that makes it have more. And plus there's the voting weight. side too. So it yeah. is weighted. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Fair. Yeah. But, you know, majority, majority yeah. judges. Um, in terms of the impact, I mean, it was huge. You know, we, we had a whole PR play on that you know we went big on the PR side and the angle that we took was this is a victory for Thailand's fitness industry you know Thailand's fitness industry is young it's emerging instead of putting it on your back you kind of spread yeah. it across Thailand absolutely yeah. no, an right? and that kind of really yeah. helped make it a more interesting story for mm. Thai journalists to cover so we got a lot of coverage right like BK Magazine Guru Magazine Bangkok Post it was covered quite widely um, I was invited to be on a, a Australia's biggest fitness podcast called My Muscle Project. They have one of the biggest podcasts in fitness and the biggest Australian one. They saw it somewhere and just reached out and said, oh, we'd like to interview the guy behind Asia Gym. How, how does here. that, and don't share the numbers. I don't mean it like that. I mean, when sure. you get an award like that, does that increase the business in terms of like, let's say members or people attending classes like tenfold, twofold? Uh, it's hard to really put a number on that. I mean, it was during a stage of growth anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, you can always ask someone when they come in, you know, why did you join base? And really, it's going to be a whole host of reasons. They might say, I saw a Facebook ad, but what was in that Facebook ad? Well, it might be something about us winning yeah. Asia's Gym of the Year, or maybe their friends have been telling them for months and months to come, and then suddenly they saw the Facebook ad. So it's really hard well, to I, say. Well, I mean, just more in general on paper, because you'd be able to see like, okay, we got the award, and from there we went from... But you don't, again, you don't know what was the award and what wasn't. It was a period of growth for uh, us okay. anyway. I mean, look, it's always been a period of growth. Yeah. It's just COVID, which is... If you look, yeah. at, our, if you look at our growth, it's like this. Yeah. We'll try to... <laughs> we'll, we'll say that current guys. situation. I'm, because yeah. I'll explain later after, but it's... I think uh, YouTube can like block this stuff. Oh, really? Okay, they pick okay. up anywhere. It's a current situation but we've only said it twice and not that bad and i did it on another podcast and i got away with it yeah so. we should go back to saying the war the war okay okay <laughs> the war yeah so um uh i wanted to jump into why your your usp because actually this is more of a like uh, i'm intrigued by it because mm -hmm. it sounds i'm very competitive and it sounds like that's something that you add to your gym where like you know People are going to want to come back daily because their friends done 20 more burpees than them on some sort of competition and all that data. It's being analyzed. It's being stored in the systems. I, I'm just trying to visualize it. How does that work? Are they wearing certain devices? Is there a scoreboard? Can you explain about that? Sure. So when we first opened the gym, it was my mentor actually said, you know, we need something different about base. And at first I was like, it's going to be the biggest, baddest gym in the world. Right. But, you know, everyone's going to say that. Right. We've got the best customer service. We've got the best coaches. So I kind of realized 
realized we need something a little bit different. And the first thing was the introduction of cardio machines. And that was something that no other gym in Bangkok was doing within their group class concept. And I, I liked it. I didn't just see it as like something that's just different for the sake of being different. It's kind of how I trained and I thought it had a lot of value. And then the other thing I really wanted to do was introduce some way of monitoring and measuring your progress during group classes because I felt like that was really missing. There was a big focus on like, yeah, do a different workout every time you come or burn as many calories as you possibly can. And for me, I was like, it doesn't really show if you're getting faster, if you're getting stronger, if you're getting fitter. So it went through like a, it was called baseline. We decided we wanted to do um, like an extra thing that would help our clients track and record their results. And so that element of the business we wanted to call baseline. You know, you come in and that's your baseline score, right? And you build up from there. And so at first we started off with people would write their scores on a board. The coach would take a photo and send it through to the front desk and put it in an Excel spreadsheet, which was just looking back absolutely ridiculous. So also... Oh, Oh, so you had someone's doing some serious data. Yeah, input. right. Yeah, we did oh, like God. a whole like team of workers in the <laughs> yeah, Philippines, yeah. like doing all of that. It, it didn't work out so well. Gotcha. So that broke down really, really quickly. Okay. So then we switched to a once a month session where you went around and did eight cardio and strength tests. You wrote down your scores on a piece of paper and then the front desk did process that, but it wasn't as labor intensive and everyone yeah. would get a PDF, which looked really cool. It was all branded and it would be a PDF of all of your results, you know, month by month. People really liked it. It gave us some really strong testimonials. You know, we could say, okay, your cardio has gone improved. Where, where could they see that data? Were they logging in through like a portal? They got sent a PDF. Okay. So, so it was still sent. very labor intensive okay. and, and yeah. it's very different. It's not, now, it's not right? like you had your own username portal, like, we do now, but yeah, yeah at that stage, yeah, yeah. no. So they would just get a PDF sent, very labor intensive and just not not up to date really, right? Something that, you know, maybe from the it's early 2000s. One. We're, we're, we're exactly, there. yeah, we're yeah. It was there. like minimum viable product, right? Just kind yeah. of getting out there and proving that people wanted to see it. And that's very much what happened. They We could show clients that your cardio has gone up 43%, your strength's gone up 57%, your body fat's gone down 2%. We had a machine that, that, that scanned and analyzed that as well. So it was really cool stats and it showed that people wanted that. We just made a decision that we had to take it to the next level. One, because tech would enable us to do it in so much of a better way. Two, we had a bit of an issue, whereas people would do it one month and then it would come to the next month. I think the first weekend of the month we'd do it and they'd be like, oh, I'm kind of busy that weekend. Or they'd be like, oh, I haven't trained that hard this month, so I don't really want to do it because I think it might have gone down a little bit. Mm. And so I was like, we need to find a way that it incorporates into every class that people do. You know, you just come in and it's just there. It's just the tech that you use and it's part of every thing that you do at base. So that was like the start of our tech enabled journey. So we went back to Maya, the company that did our branding because they also do development. And we just started on that process. They had to link it in with our booking system so that when you Brendan book into a class, We'd basically push your data through to our back end. And then we had tablets set up around the studio. Yeah, that's so it. As you do the class, you tap in your scores, you tap in your speeds, and the programming is, is linked to that. And we wanted to make it as easy and as seamless as possible. We knew that was our biggest challenge. The user experience had to be so mm -hmm. good that you finish the treadmill set and it's just easy to do. And we thought at the beginning, once we got it up and running, which took about 12 months, from like, okay, we're gonna do the tech to actually this is functioning within a class. Took a year and a lot of money as well to get to that stage. And since we spent a whole load more and developed it a whole load more. To get to that stage, we thought maybe 50 or 60% would be inputting their scores. The really encouraging thing was we had 80 to 90% of people inputting their scores before they could even see it on the scoreboard. So at first we were like, we're collecting your data, you know, we'll, we'll show you later how much you've improved. Just type in your stats. And almost everybody was doing it. And that was really cool. The next stage- Were they doing it between sets? Like yes. if, you, if you're doing a 13 uh, circuit training and so yeah, one we, is like, mm. I don't know, let's say slam ball and you do, 
you're doing as many as you can in let's say 45 seconds. Yeah, we do, it's longer sets. So the, the length of our sets is typically five minutes. Oh, okay. So you have five minutes on the treadmill doing maybe 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off, okay. or one minute fast, one minute slow, or inclines going up and down or whatever it might be. And at the end, you would just hit your name, hit in the distance that you ran, and it would be linked to that day's set. So you don't need to put the set that you did or anything like that. Mm. On the row, it might be 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off today. It might be 10 calories on the row, 10 slam ball slams, alternating between the two. And so we wanted to make it quite easy to follow quite simple make the sets quite easy to understand and then easy to input and there's definitely be some tweaks along the way but what was so encouraging that even just the idea that it was collecting their data they would put it in as soon as we started putting the leaderboard up and the class scoreboard people got really excited and then we started adding other features so let's say brendan you've been training at base for a year and today's set is the one kilometer time trial, which we do. It has a five minute time cap. When you get to the, the, the run station, it will show up on the board your best score or your best time. So let's say, for example, it's four minutes 30. The coach then can see that. How are you feeling today, Brendan? Yeah, pretty good. You've been training much recently? Yeah, two or three times a week. Let's try and beat your time then. So do that time you would need to do 13 kilometers an hour. So the coach can actually use that information to make sure that set is right for you. And that kind of goes back to what I felt was missing in the industry, which was just, yeah, go, go, go. You can do it fast as you can. Burn as many calories as possible. You know, we now call it cheerleading over coaching. Well, you you added structure to, to that experience because, I mean... For me, I, I, I've tried to get into HIT, but I, personally, I can't. It's just, um, I've done Muay Thai, I've done HIT, I've been to Unit 27, but always at the end of the day, I go back to the gym, and I just like to lift weights. I don't know, I've tried, trust me, I've tried. I just can't get into it. For me, it's, uh, uh, I think the problem is I know how difficult it is, mm-hmm. that like, my yeah, mind can't yeah. wrap around it. Everyone's got to find what's right for them. Correct, right. right. So, for, it's I've tried even jujitsu and different things, and you just, ah, this isn't for me. But, um... In terms of the, this hit side, now it's getting very competitive. What happens in the gym? Because what is a push-up? What is a ball slam? Do, <laughs> yeah. do people start like, does it's it fight, get heated? Fights break out That's sometimes. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Does yeah. it get heated Rules, in there? Rules uh, kick off occasionally. No, it's, it's, we've actually switched the focus a little bit. So the competitive element is there and the leaderboards are there if you want to follow them. But actually we've taken the focus more on, you're on your journey, right? How much are you improving? Um, and that's been quite quite big for us. And we've actually changed the way that the information is displayed. Like now we will have the top 10 of the day displayed somewhere else in the gym. So if you want to see that, you can go and see it. But the main data is your previous scores, your scores for today. And it highlights it differently if you've got a personal best. So if today, if we take that run example, you run four minutes, 28, it's your best ever. The coach can be like, Brendan, awesome work, man. You hit your PB, you've been training with us for a year. That's really good, well done. You can give people shout outs on the board. And so it becomes more about... You know, what have you done compared to you rather than who's the fastest and who's the best? But that element is still there if you want it. But because that focus has been taken away from competitiveness, we don't get that. I mean, we do a little bit. Yeah, what's the push up? We don't have judges like CrossFit. To give you structure, like, so you know when you go back to, let's say, again, do your one kilometer and how fast you're going to do it in. It's the same. I use an app. It's called JE Fit, but I use it for the gym. And I've programmed, I I follow this program by this guy, Jeff Nippard. Um, but basically I'm able to see exactly what did I lift last week? How many reps did I, how many reps did I do? What was the weight? And I also use another, uh, variable called like RPE, like my rate Mm -hmm. of excursion. So that, cause that will change that, that drastically will change what I've done. And I, I never go to fail. I always stop it about 80%. So I leave myself too, just so I don't get this like late onset Mm -hmm. muscle pain and I can't walk for three days. But back to your point that data drives me every week because I don't need to think, 
when you get the when you get to the machine how many reps did i yeah, do yeah. what was my time just look at the data okay let's try to beat that and then it's it's you're t- you're you're putting more energy on yourself than trying to focus on what you've done mm. uh, is that kind of where your concept came from as well yeah, I mean, so you're happy to look at the app and to kind of work it out and to yeah. see how you're feeling. You know, people typically come to base because they don't want to do anything like that. So having the coach being able to ask them a couple of questions and then give them advice based on the data that they have and also the questions that they ask them. Now, we're at a stage now where we've got all these ideas of cool things that we can do. I mean, the next stage we want to do is just a simple, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? And you could do that through our app which we've just launched, or maybe as you come into the studio, right? And then the coach doesn't even need to ask them. If that person's put a 10 and your PB is four minutes 30, well, I'm going to push you to, to beat that, yeah. right? If you put a four, I'm absolutely not going to do that at all. I'm probably not even going to talk to you about your personal best because I know you're a four out of 10. And then you can link it into sleep-based apps, you know, Fitbits. There's all sorts of uh, technologies whoop, whoop. that we can link to. Whoop would be a great are, one, yeah. The, so that, that really does it getting, all right, how you slept. I have the Fitbit, but it's... I just honestly, I just Whoops, use like it taking for it to the next level. Next level, right? So yeah, we could definitely incorporate into technologies like that. So then people come in to base to do a training session, and the coach has got all the information they need to make it perfect. Mm. You know, we can definitely look at stuff like AI that would actually give them specific recommendations, like on the road today, based on your sleep, based on how you say you're feeling today, based on your personal best, based on how often you trained recently. This is what you should go for on the run. This is the speed. Are you there should go other up. gyms doing? I'm a, I'm going to assume Singapore probably has gyms that do this, just because it's Singapore. Not to the level that we're doing it, to be honest. Uh, are with there you. other other gyms like in the world, like like in terms of like when you started developing this this program? Essentially, I mean, it's you're developing from scratch, which means you're going to make a ton of mistakes along the way, which mm. you've explained. But did you have anyone to benchmark off of, like in the oh, U.S. Yeah. or the U.K. Yeah. or it was kind of just? This is how I want to build it. This is where we're going with it. Well, it just it sort of went step by step, right? So first yeah. it was writing on the board, and then I was like, well, tech would just make more sense. Honestly, I know some things that are like vaguely, vaguely similar. There was one that like, yeah, you do something like a minute push-ups at the end, and there's something you can enter it in, like an app or something. I mean, CrossFit have got some good. I think Waterfire is one of the platforms where, but it's more like at the end of the session, like let's say you did... 180 kg on the deadlift you would go and like but it's not integrated into the gym not really no i haven't really seen that to be honest with you we've just integrated um heart rate technologies and we want to incorporate that into performance as well because i think heart rate technology is great but it also doesn't tell you necessarily if you're getting fitter right it just says that your your effort level like if you get to 95 percent, well how fast were you running at 95 percent you know you might run at 10 kilometers an hour 95 percent now but in a year you're running 15 kilometers an hour 95 percent so we want to incorporate that into the data as well with that information as well will you be taking things such as like vo2 max into consideration Um, that would kind of be extra stuff i mean we'd have to do like a separate test for that okay because incorporate i heard you can get that from certain maybe a fitbit or a whoop or maybe the one you have to wear on the chest to really get it done properly and to really be done very accurately i believe i might be wrong on this but i believe that you need to do like a proper test for it but yeah there's more and more data being introduced right and so that will just help us to develop this kind of ecosystem where people don't really need to leave it and it just gives you so much information it gives the coach so much information honestly i mean if you look at all the major players Mm -hmm. f45 orange theory barry's boot camp i mean i've been to all the gyms in london and new york and singapore and I don't see anyone doing it, certainly on the level to what we're doing and what we plan to do with it as well, which is, you know, kind of exciting. Yeah, I, I've seen, uh, well, I had Sean, uh, Sean Kober on the podcast. Are you familiar with no, Co- no. Coach Kober? He's the, he's one of the, he's the head strength and, one of the head strength and conditioning coaches at Tiger Muay Thai. He's the, the head strength and conditioning coach of uh, Petra Yang, which is the bantamweight UFC champion. Oh, cool. Um, so Sean was on one of the podcasts earlier and he was explaining that side to it in terms of 
with his athletes how dialed in he is into the metrics because on certain days he could tell his athlete like you can't train today your vo2 max or something something's wrong with your heart rate don't train today if you train today you'll get sick and many times specifically with petra young he told us a story where he said don't train today or you're going to get a cold the next day, the guy had a cold, and he's like, how the <laughs> yeah. fuck did you know that? He's like, just because you're measuring so much information. So can you take that into consideration when your clients come in, and, and you could look at them and be like, yeah, I don't know if you should be training so hard today. Maybe instead of an 8 out of 10, just go with a 3 or a 4, because you know, your sure. immune system could be jeopardized as well. Absolutely, yeah. So you just use as much data as you can, right? Because someone might feel great, and then they but they still shouldn't really train hard. Right. Um, or someone feels, you know, really not that great, but once they get moving again, I mean, I feel this, right? Sometimes I'm like, really don't feel like training today. I don't think I'm quite, yeah, maybe I haven't slept right. Maybe I haven't eaten right. And as soon as I start moving, I feel great. Yeah. You know, so it's probably just that that temporary feeling that I, I had. I always find it sleep though. Sleep is sleep's a big one. There, I think there's a lot of things that come into it. Stress. I think sleep's probably the biggest single one. I would say perhaps, you know, nutrition, all, all sorts yeah. of things that would play a part. Sleep's certainly a big one. And, you know, we would be a great, thing that, that that looks at that it looks at heart rate variability as well so it kind of shows you how recovered you yeah, are but at least i find like well stress with work it can be hard to manage but diet you should be able to make you have more control sleep sometimes it's out of your control mm. like maybe it's from from stress of work and you go to bed at night and you just I, like for me if i don't get eight hours like i'll watch this and if yeah, i get yeah, five or six too. oh yeah for sure. i cannot train like today i didn't get a good sleep last night and I'll go to the gym today and I know it will be like right, a 60%. Right. Yeah, so the more that we can do to incorporate yeah. that into baseline, the better, right? I mean, if, if we can collect all that information, which you can now, you can share right through. Uh, some of them are very open with sharing their APIs. Some you have to kind of set up deals with, stuff like that. But our vision is to really have it all incorporated in. So yeah, body composition, like how Whoop. your body's changing. Opening yeah, up link their it APIs, into, yeah. Yeah, any, any, all of these companies. We would be, would be one of the leaders. And then we've got all the information we need to coach an amazing workout. So that's that, that particular person. Okay, I'm going to jump into kind of a, a Q&A session a little bit. Sure. Just some random random questions because we're probably, what, 90 minutes? No, 120. 120. See, I, I'm, I'm, I'm catching on. It Loads just comes naturally. Um, okay, so uh, the first question is, um, how would your employees describe you at work? If, you, you know, because I, I'm a boss... Sometimes, and I don't know what the fuck Han says behind my back, but, <laughs> you know, employees like to vent. And as the boss, or I don't want to say the boss, it's, you know, you're, 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 you're giving direction and you need to steer the ship. Um, the employees, they need that chatter behind the boss's back. It's just mm-hmm. natural. They need it. What do you think they're saying about you? Uh, yeah, good question. I'll, I'll try to make them fairly quick fire answers <laughs> so we can get through more. And if they're I, watching this, let's see how accurate we are. I think... I think they would good say... Good or bad, good or bad. It's yeah, not, yeah, not, yeah. Not yeah. Negative. Don't worry. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll get someone on the podcast so they can tell you. I think <laughs> they would say that I have a deep passion for doing something special in the industry. You know, not just making as much money as I can or having an exit or anything like that, that I truly want to do something great. I think they would say that I'm... I have their best interests at heart, I would hope, which I do. And I, I, I think I've got better at showing that over the years as well. I'm truly invested in them, their development, and their growth. Um, trying to think of something a bit more negative than they might say. It's always uh, it's always hard to pull those ones out, <laughs> unless we had a couple beers. It's easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with those two. Okay, I'll stick with those well, two. Well, well, <laughs> hey, employees, anonymously in the yeah, comments, yeah, please do. let us know. Please do. No. Um, I think they also say as well. I guess one thing that's a bit more because I ask them in one to ones, right, with the, the yeah. staff that I have one to ones with, and I think they say that I. 
I kind of take on a bit too much. You know, I, they, I, I'm doing a lot of things I probably shouldn't be doing. Spreading yourself too A little thin. bit, yeah, a little bit. So it kind but of... That's normal in, in your position. And as the, the, the CEO now, correct? Mm -hmm. CEO, founder, what is kind of your role and responsibility? Like, are you on the floor with the administrative side, like looking over their shoulder? Are you, are you more just like setting up different department meetings and making those decisions? Yeah, I mean, that's what it should be, right? Yeah. I mean, with everything that's happened this year, I've kind of been pulled into more stuff that I shouldn't really be doing. So I'm in the process now of like phasing out of that. You know, we had a couple of coaches leave during COVID, which left a little bit of a gap. So we've just recruited three new coaches. I mean, we were very happy that we only lost two coaches out of 26 during COVID. So yeah. we were very during that that time <laughs> yeah during the, <laughs> okay. the ongoing war that we're having <laughs> so we've had three new coaches that were training up and so i get very involved in that like training the coaches up myself and our fitness manager who's uh, an american guy he's awesome jeff and so we do a lot of the training for the new coaches together i could leave it up to him that's something that i still want to be involved in one because i really enjoy it and so i think at the moment i best communicate some of the things that they need to do to make themselves a success in this industry and it base as and, well. and also for your brand to make sure that things aren't jeopardized exactly. as well and, and exactly we're very specific and your about vision training as well so, yeah and yeah. i kind of want them to sense that and to feel that so i think that early contact time is important and then i take a step back administratively i'm pretty much totally out but i would sign off bigger things marketing i'm still involved in because it's really hard to find good marketing people i have one girl that works with me gee she's absolutely awesome she's been with us for about four years now she's just brilliant and we we do a lot together we, she's probably the person i work most closely with she just runs with stuff but she kind of runs it by me i sign things off we did have two on the marketing team but one left during yeah. the closures well, to go and if work you with had any agency. competitors out there that you know and, and that's why I, I just don't believe in competitors because just mm, stay in your lane and do your shit and You'll be fine. Yeah. But my point is, uh, it's more like some words of advice saying, like, if you're getting into the fitness industry, specifically, not just Asia, but Thailand, mm -hmm. um, in terms of marketing, um, where should you focus most of your, like, how would you apply that 80-20 rule? I think, first of all, I'll, I'll give myself a little plug. Listen to the Fitness Business Asia podcast yeah. because I talk about all of this in great detail and I really don't hold back on, on anything. Like, really. Like, if we do an episode on recruitment, I will share completely our recruitment process inside and out. And I know some competitors, you know, quote-unquote competitors listen to that and I'm totally fine with that. One of the missions of the podcast, and really it's become one of the missions of BASE as well, is to build up the fitness industry in Asia. And so if we have a, a strong competitor that comes in, I honestly think that's good. It will bring more people to our type of training. It's very much a growing part of the industry. You know, very small percentage of ties do this. So any good, strong players that come in, I honestly and genuinely believe that's a good thing. And, you know, you only have to listen to our podcast to see that. But the podcast can really help build, build this and, and, and grab uh, push this information. That's kind of why I asked that question, just to let <laughs> you get that plug in there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, it, honestly, I talk about all of it in, in great, great detail. Um, we've done a whole series on, yeah, recruitment, on marketing, on yeah. branding, on PR. We talk about that at great length as well. So I guess that's just my way of showing that I totally agree with you that I'd be happy to help any. I've talked to competitors and helped them out with things that they're, that, that they're stuck with as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of marketing specifically... I mean, it all starts with um, yeah, building a great brand and building something that people genuinely want to come to. Then but I mean, like in terms of the digital marketing, marketing aspect in, uh, let's say, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, even Google pay-per-click ads, or you're, are you doing everything? Are you, are you kind of doing what we, I guess they call it the inbound marketing, HubSpot coined it, this, this 
this yeah. email marketing wheel of newsletters, pretty much, uh, you know, your PR, your SEO, your on-page, mm. your off, everything, your landing pages, all this stuff. Yep. Yeah, we, we do all of that. I mean, yep. email's big for us. We've got a strong, engaged email list, and that's that's huge for us. And, you know, that'd be great for you guys as well, right? You were looking at a way, yeah. something that people can't take away from you, right? And an email list is certainly that. Even Facebook, Instagram, you never know what they're going to change, what they're going to do with the algorithm. So email is big for us. And we make a lot of big, big sales through our email list. Yeah. Um, events we've sold out in a few hours. That if we sold the tickets in branch, well, we wouldn't sell one in a few hours, right? And we sold all of them out online. So a big step that we did, and it's something that I've talked about on the podcast, is just having the ability to pay on the website and online is huge. And so that was something that we put money into in the beginning. You can do discount codes and stuff like that. Might seem something quite simple, right? But most gyms don't do that. You have to call them. You have to go in. You have to give them your credit card. So even that alone is just... The user experience, it becomes yeah, too complicated. Yeah, it makes it easy to, to, yeah. to, to, to... Once you've made that decision to do it, you know, we had a Black Friday sale. We don't normally do it, but we did it with everything that's happened this year. And it's just amazing. Whenever we do anything, anything like this and we have like a, a last minute offer or discount code it always ends at midnight 11 40 yeah, that time 11 pressure 52, on 11 58 yeah, sure. like someone's like should i shouldn't i yeah, should yeah, i yeah. shouldn't i and they just do it in the last minute and they wouldn't do that unless you had yeah the sense of urgency absolutely absolutely you know whether that's through time whether that's through we've got 20 packages at this yeah. price you know we do that so email is huge for us obviously we, we invest a lot on the sort of storytelling brand building yeah. on Facebook and Instagram and then we also do ads as well yeah. usually to kind of get those initial people sort of into the system into the funnel so that's with a trial offer and then during the trial offer we show them what we do show them why we're great have them download the app the customer service staff will then show them what base is the bathrooms everything else the coach should try and connect with them everything kind of links in together to turn that person into a, a full client yeah. so after the trial period they can then get um a full package at like a slight discount or i think we got like a one month like bridging thing to a full membership if they're not quite ready so yeah there's a whole process basically. yeah so anyone that is looking to start this up they need to understand it's um especially if they're not so much familiar with the marketing side because a lot of people in marketing they're just going to immediately go instagram ads but there's a whole other spectrum of stuff to do and uh to make yourself aware of that well um, i think it's just if, if i can add yeah, a little yeah, something yeah, on sure. there i think with marketing it's people look at the, the funnels the ads the landing page and we do all of that right yep. we have landing page to capture the information and we call them as soon as we can we've got a whole sales process but it, it does all start with like who are you for? How do you talk to them? Are you telling the kind of stories that get this gets this person excited? How do you present your brand? How do you get people like just doing those natural referrals? Because if you don't have that, just working on working on the other stuff, it doesn't really work that well. You know, I've seen agencies that have worked with companies in Bangkok, and I've seen the work that they've done. And honestly, it's just all sales, discount codes, this percentage off, this new deal. And I'm like, yeah, it's not going to get anyone excited. Too full, like too, if you're spreading yourself too thin, you really need to hone in on what's going to be working. Um, e even on that marketing side, and I know we kind of went off on a tangent on this one, but it's I, I find it interesting. And that's honestly the selfish part of the podcast. I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Just all about us learning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, do, you see, do you see yourself spreading yourself thinner in the marketing in terms of like Discord, Facebook groups, and, and trying to focus on that? Because that stuff's starting to work as well. Yeah. Live streams on Twitch from within. Again, marketing, the sky's the limit. Is there a point in marketing in the fitness industry where maybe you need you, you just focus on what's working and not trying to spread yourself too thin? Well, if you take, I mean, yeah, you should do that for sure, right? And you shouldn't have eight different channels and then you're doing all of them like okay or not very yeah. good. You know, pick one or two big ones. Instagram's usually one of the biggest ones, right? Um, you know, I know a gym that's aiming for a very high-end market segment in Sydney and they've gone LinkedIn because that's more suitable to the kind of client they're looking for. So pick the one, two, or maybe three that are big for you. 
and just kind of go all in on those. You know, YouTube, we've got YouTube videos and some of them have got thousands of views, but we don't have a proper like YouTube strategy. We just upload stuff like as in when yeah. pretty much. When we had the podcast, we'd put podcast episodes up on there. But people do find us from there. You know, for us, Facebook and, and Instagram are like the, the, the main channels for sure. It depends on the depth of your team, right? Like I'd love to do all of it. Of you course. Know? If your but budget's unlimited, I mean, yeah. At the moment, it's just me and one other person. We are recruiting another marketing staff. So we're going to bring on like an intern or like a, a lower level exec and they'll come on and that will enable us to do a few more things like that. I just got a consultancy client from Florida that found us through Pinterest. Oh, wow. So yeah. um, I think three years ago, we had an intern, a marketing intern, and I wanted to find things for her to do. I was like, I'll put up a Pinterest board because, you know, we've got a beautiful gym. It looks pretty cool. And so she did a board on gym design, a board on like bathrooms. And this guy who's building his gym in Florida reached out and now he's a consultant client. I'm helping him build his gym in Florida. So yeah, it's, it's funny. I guess you're just that was more, fishing, more, more fishing poles. You're going to catch more yeah. well, fish isn't the right word for clients, but meaning like just more opportunity as well. Um, I wanted to jump into... Um, virtual reality and, and we're going into things such as like the metaverse and, and essentially more VR is going to get stronger. Do you see this playing any role in your business? Oh, great question. I think it plays a big role in the fitness industry. Um, in terms of us, it's not something we've, I've really considered particularly closely, I'll be honest. I kind of keep an eye on what's happening in that space. I mean, just on a personal level, I'm okay. more of a believer in, in this, right? You yeah. and me, Brendan, sitting next to each other having a chat yeah. rather than, you know, with our headsets yeah. on on the other side of the world. So that's just kind of from a personal perspective. I don't want to let that get too much in the way of like what might be best for base. So I've definitely got an open mind with regards to stuff like this. I think there's probably going to be like pretty much two different parts of the market. There's going to be the in-person, which will always be there. At the moment, you've kind of got the digital fitness at home, which has taken a big sharp downturn after things have opened up. And then I think you've probably got this third space in the market and okay they can feed off of each other but maybe we're better off being the in-person studio that you come to i don't know i think it's important that i have an open mind as these things yeah develop. and i think that that's just more of a the neg uh, it would be a very negative mindset of like okay no more lockdowns I, i'm just thinking more from that if this world gets locked down more and all this shit happens you might not have a choice right that's the thing i was wondering that with gyms like because i and we won't talk about that because everyone knows the answer like the the this war devastated many gyms and many mm. gyms didn't recover um so with that like how can they adapt and i was always thinking i'm like maybe they have to go vr but i, I again, feel like the trouble is someone else will do that much better right like we yeah. could you know a gym can invest yeah. into that at crossfit try and kind of make it work somehow but then apple's going to come out with something that's just absolutely ridiculous yeah. and costs like two dollars a month or something right so you you are competing against those big big boys so just it's the same as digital fitness as in online like doing it through zoom or whatever okay great when you're shut that's brilliant but now that we're open yeah people want to come back and we saw our numbers go through the floor and we switched that off pretty quickly and again you can't really compete with the pelotons and the apples of this world really do you think, long do you think bangkok how, how is bangkok right now because we're a bit we got blinders on here <laughs> yeah. what, what time we're 130 140 oh okay we're okay we'll go another like 10 minutes i got sure. two more fun questions uh, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, um yeah. you're okay on time yeah, absolutely okay um how, well because phuket we we're in our sandbox uh, essentially um not the sandbox in the nft world but we're in our sandbox here and we don't really see what's going on outside of Thailand. We kind of see it on the news, but to be honest, I don't watch the news. Um, it's good. What's going on in Bangkok? Things are opening up. How's it? And and specifically, when did your gym kind of like springboard back? And how's it going? Yeah. So it's what December now, right? December twenty twenty one. No, everyone is so yeah. lost on time. It's. Um, yeah. 
pretty much open now, pretty much back to normal. Our biggest classes we used to have would be between 24 and 30. This is pre-COVID. And we used to have full classes. I don't know how the hell we did that now looking back. Now we've capped it at 18. And it's it's tight. It's a little bit cozy. Probably a little bit closer than some people are comfortable with. But people are pretty much generally fine. We started off with 12, which is very spacious at base. You get a lot of room. And then we went to 15 and then we went to 18. And you can really see week by week, people just sort of care less. Masks when training are optional. You can wear them or not. It's up to you. Coaches do wear them. And people have just been taking their masks off more and more as time's gone by. You know, financially, you know, I guess listening to this podcast, it all probably sounds really exciting what we've done and everything else. But honestly, man, it's been damn hard this year. Like financially, it's been a big blow. You know, we've put a lot of things in place that we didn't think we'd ever have to do to make sure the company survives and continues to be strong. And we are strong and we are certainly going to kind of get through this. And we would never, ever let it fail because we believe so much in the future of the fitness industry even if it ends up going into the metaverse <laughs> no, i feel no. like base is in an incredibly strong position with the brand that we built and everything else so even if it meant getting extra investment down the line or something like that we would absolutely carry on but yeah it's been horrible it's been hard um revenue's certainly been picking up massively since we opened up we've had full classes personal training like new clients coming in and old clients coming back who are starting to feel more comfortable now so i think Barring any crazy things happening next year, I think 2022 will be really, really big. And I think January especially will be huge as long as nothing unexpected happens. As we know, that could happen, right? Yeah, you never know. I think it seems Thailand's reopening. We have Mm. some friends. Shout out to Bang Tao... MMA and Muay Thai, they're opening up down the road, but they're cool. they're a new MMA gym. Have you heard of them? I think I saw on your yeah, Instagram. So yeah. these guys are the um, um, they used to work at Tiger, and then they came over here. It's the Hickman brothers and Woody and Alex. Okay, they set nice. up this new MMA gym, but this gym is going. I don't know if you follow MMA or not. I mean, just, anyways, some it, them, this yeah, will it will compete with Tiger. Okay, it's at that level. You can actually if if you're if you're around here, go check them out. Okay, they're cool. doing the construction now. It's almost. I would say it's seventy percent done, but I mean, while you're here, you might as well yeah, yeah, pop in and, and, and check it out. Um, okay, uh, well, two more questions. Uh, the first question is, what motivates you to get out of bed every morning? In terms of not just for the business side, but personal as well. Like, what is your motivating factors? I think it comes back to that underlying mission of the podcast and also a base of making the fitness industry in Asia better and stronger because of the huge impact that has on people. And that's really what was missing in the corporate side of my life. And I realized that very, very quickly. And then in the clothing stuff, right, it was kind of fun and exciting at first and I was making decent money, but it was missing that sort of mission led reason to get out of bed every morning. And now I really have that, but it kind of goes deeper than that. It's like, I first got in this industry because I thought it'd be fun And I thought I would enjoy making people fitter and stronger and helping them progress. I just thought that'd be something really cool to do. And it turns out that it was, you know, working with people one-to-one and seeing them improve was, was awesome. And I really, really enjoyed that aspect of the job. Now I will coach coaches. They can then coach 10 people, 20 people. And if I coach 20 coaches and they've got 20 clients each, that's 400 people. That's the only way to scale as well. Absolutely. If base ends up expanding around Asia and around the world and we get up a strong franchise model and we put out good content that helps educate people, then we can, we can really truly build this fitness industry up and that's why i it comes back to your competitor thing like another competitor is helping more people get fit and strong and that's a cool thing right and i'll be honest it took me a little while to kind of get to that stage you know the early days of the fitness industry if a new gym opened up i'd be like shit what's going on here oh we got some competition now they're going to take our clients but it could be a good thing like i mean location's key as well for for gyms because people don't want to travel an hour i mean maybe some people do but 
I mean, if you're helping a competitor on the other side of the city and then their one of their clients moves to your side, they're going to recommend you as well. So it's kind of... But even, I mean, that's how I used to think, right? Yeah. And it, it, after a while, it's just in the early stages of the fitness industry, I saw that actually a competitor was, was good because it would bring more people to the fitness industry. And okay, one of our clients might live nearer there or maybe their friend trains there, so they've gone there instead. But what we also saw is some of their clients would come to us yeah. and the whole industry gets bigger. So now I've realized that it's only a good thing. Like really, any competition is a good yeah. thing. Even if it opens up next door and it's doing pretty much exactly the same thing, if they're genuinely great, it's going to force us to raise our game as well, yeah. right? And that kind of excites me as an entrepreneur. And I think it, it has to, because otherwise you just drive yourself crazy. If you start looking at the competition, what are they doing? Oh shit, maybe they're better than us. And you're just going to drive you mad. You know, focus on what you're doing, doing it, do it really well. And then that combined with like the mission that we have for the company gets me out of bed easily. Honestly, mate, on, on Sunday, I can't wait for the next day. And that's the complete opposite to how it was in the corporate world, where it's like on Sunday, I'd be like, oh my God, I got to go back to work tomorrow. Well, I was going to ask, like, let's, let's, it's not to like boost the ego or anything like that. It's more essentially you're, you're, you're kind of a pioneer in the, that the, the health and, and fitness industry in Asia and specifically Bangkok in 20 years on Wikipedia, when it says the history of fitness in Bangkok, do you feel you'll have that legacy as kind of being one of those pioneers? And I mean, that's a hard question to ask so you don't toot your own horn, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, I, I think the obvious answer should be yes, because I mean, there probably weren't too many people before you specifically what you're doing. Like, let's forget about the Muay Thai and MMA. That's something else. I think there's been like a few generations. I mean, I look at my boss and he was, yeah, one of the early pioneers yeah. for sure. Right. And I learned so much from him and I've kind of been in the next generation, if you will. Call I think it 2.0. Yeah, let's say that yeah. 2.0. And I think, you know, with what we've done in terms of winning Asia's Gym of the Year, putting base to an international stage, you know, we work a lot with a lot of like fitness conferences in the region to kind of get these positive messages out. And to be honest, I think a lot of people in the fitness industry, if you said, okay, tell us something about what's going on in Thailand, a lot would say base. They'd also say absolute, I think would be another one. You know, Physique 57 are going a doing a good job. The lab are obviously very established as well still. So we'd certainly be one of those names. And with everything I'm doing with the podcast, I think that's helped to elevate sort of, yeah, personal brand, I guess you can call it, and also base as well. So yeah, I think so. In 20 years, you know, I would hope then that we would be in... Considered like, you know... one. one well, then the I think... I would hope even more so that's the case because yeah. I want to be in Singapore next. That's the big goal to open up hopefully next year as long as things go smoothly. And um, because I believe that we have created something special enough that can really stand out in a big fitness market. Would like you Singapore. go to Hong Kong as well? Or, or it doesn't appeal to me as much for, yeah, for various reasons, really, with everything going on there. So yeah. um, if we have a franchise model, then absolutely. If anyone wants to open in Hong Kong, then reach yeah. out to us. And that's kind of the way that I think we're going is developing a strong franchise model using the technology so that basically anyone with a strong enough fitness background can open a base, right? And we would provide all the tools that they were able to do that. So look, let's say in 10 years, 20 years is a long time, but let's yeah. say in 10 years, you know, maybe even some in Canada, in the States, <laughs> in the UK, go. perhaps, right? And then I think, for me, that would be so cool that we've, enabled, we, we've been able to have this Thai-based fitness company that started in Bangkok, that's truly become international. Mm -hmm. You know, Absolute have done that as well. So they have locations in Singapore. So they've definitely very much firmly put themselves on the map. We want to do that and then some. Do you... Well, let me rephrase that. If you were not doing fitness and not doing your podcast and, and, and doing nothing related to fitness at all, uh, whether it's another business or a hobby or just nothing, what would you be doing? Definitely not nothing. Um, I'm really interested now in other businesses. So I'm actually quite interested to invest in a different business. I've helped a lot of friends out in all sorts of different businesses. Not to say that I'm an expert, but I think there's a lot I've learned in terms of marketing, in terms of recruitment, 
even in terms of um you mean you're, you're looking to get into venture capital uh, uh like, not quite that like yet not, not <laughs> okay, okay even just like i don't know even in consulting uh, and yeah, yeah yeah because there's a lot of principles that remain true regardless of the business that you go into right like do, do you would you do you offer that like if people were to reach out to you for fitness business consulting that you would take your time or you're just again you would spread yourself too thin at this point uh, i do, I do offer it we offer it as part of the fitness business asia umbrella i've got a few yeah. consulting clients i'm pretty much full but hey yeah. reach out you know i do hour by hour i'm always happy to jump on a call anyway and maybe just give a few little things to help out um it would be a little bit hard at the moment to take clients on but definitely open to the conversation as well of i do it because i enjoy it and i learn a lot um, that's the main reason. I mean, it pays okay as well, but I do it more because it's, I only work with projects that I know I can positively impact and that I think will be fun to work with. Yeah, and that started out with Phuket, right? It, it, it's day. Yeah. Also with that, I mean, it, it would be, um, every day's a new day and you're allowed to be creative in the sense that like everybody that comes to your table with like a business idea in terms of the fitness industry, um, you know, the baby's starting from scratch and you get to be involved in it from the beginning. Right, and that right. can be it's very motivating. Part. Yeah, and watching it grow. I mean, watching this grow. I mean, this room, this used to be my bedroom. And then I just ripped the bed out. I had a California king, and now I sleep on a queen. So I've sacrificed sleep a little bit. But, um, yeah, we painted the walls. We got acoustic. I mean, it's fun to watch things grow from zero to what they are. Now. You get to be involved in the most yeah. fun part, for sure. Yeah. I think, I just honestly, I love business now. And I love the idea that, you know, you're, you're providing a service that people want that people need, you're making things better. I just love all of that. So if any friends like starting a business, I always like jump in and try and help out wherever I can. And again, I you know, don't confess to be an expert in every industry, of course, but I just, I know there's a lot that I've learned. You know, we've got 50 employees now, for example, right? So we're like a medium sized company. So yeah, there's a lot that, of principles and, and yeah. processes and foundations that from any business that can be applied to another business. So that's always interesting to pick up. And then also by dealing with people in different businesses and in different industries, they can add value For maybe sure. a different perspective on things you might not have seen as well absolutely yeah you yeah. can learn yeah, all sorts of things from other industries and I, i've kind of become certainly a studier of gyms because i think you can learn so much not in terms of like oh we got to do that or I, I like what they did there let's copy that it's more like how they build that vibe how they build the brand I remember there was one gym in new york and right up in the corner they had a speaker and it had the logo and it was painted in their color. And I'm like, man, that's attention to detail in terms of branding, right? Mm -hmm. Literally that speaker up there that basically no one's gonna see, they have branded up. And it just, it's that tiny little part. You have a thousand things like that and you've got an amazingly strong brand or how they introduce the workout at the beginning of the class, the music that they play, the bathrooms. And so by going to like basically the, the, the leading fitness cities in the world and going to all the gyms, I've certainly learned a lot. But that learning process just goes into everywhere you go. If you go to a real nice restaurant or a real nice hotel, definitely take note of all the little things that they do, how they create that experience. Any website that I go on, honestly, I'm kind of like a little bit obsessed with it. Like yeah, any you, purchase you, that I make, I, yeah, I always yeah. consider the journey that I'm going through and how easy they're making it for me. The user experience itself and yeah that that's that's very important especially like on any any type of brand you get attached to as well once it becomes a little bit too difficult you know uh things aren't working the proper way you kind of people uh their attention spans are quite quick and they can bounce out that's why landing pages are so important right and how they're designed yes. right? and that's a cool interesting part yeah. as well like analyzing the landing pages where do people drop off yeah. you know maybe they're signing up but they're not buying or they're not coming to do the free trial maybe they're doing the free trial but they're not actually buying a package and you can kind of like pinpoint the yeah, exact you can use the a b split testing hot right. spots yeah there's, there's some technology at clavier or something anyways you can see different like actually hotspots on the page how people scroll yeah this software is amazing you can try different yeah. colors yeah. different wording different yeah. images i mean like you said that you're into all of this stuff yeah, i don't I know it. if many people are but honestly I, I love it and that's one reason why i stay particularly involved in the marketing side yeah. because honestly i really enjoy it 
Okay, I think we've probably hit two hours, yeah? Oh, we did We did well. Um, we're going to wrap this up. I'm going to reshoot the intro because I'm going to be tighter on that. I didn't really like it. Um, <laughs> I thought it was all right. I was okay. It was a bit long-winded. I think we can get to the point. What do you think? Should we reshoot it? Nah, it was good. All right. Well, there we go. You let us know in the comments if it was good or if I stumbled. I didn't love it, but I'm an attention to detail freak. So, um, Okay, so this is your camera. We're going to cut to that and... We can do a little cut promo of everything that you want to plug here sure. um, and take it away whenever you're ready. Okay. Okay, it's been a pleasure, guys. So first of all, thanks, Brendan. I really enjoyed the chat. And this is an awesome studio, probably the best studio that I've ever done a podcast in. So really, thank you for the invitation. Very happy to be here. Uh, where can you find out more about me? So basebangkok.com or Instagram slash basebangkok or Facebook slash basebangkok. Very easy to find. Fitness Business Asia. Basically search for that anywhere. If you search for it on Google, we come up first. If you search for it in Spotify or Apple, and then you can find all the details to contact me if you want to as well. If you want to reach out to me personally, perhaps for consultancy or for an idea that you might have for the fitness industry, Jack at Base Bangkok. That goes straight through to me. Thank you for listening, guys. Hope to catch you soon. Uh, Awesome. Okay. So thanks a lot, Jack, for coming. Um, I thought that went quite well. And I hope we gave enough information to the audience to at least pick up uh, some nuggets of information. I mean, that's why I like these podcasts. People can, uh, um, instead of having to sift through 20 different, let's say, YouTube tutorial videos, you can kind of get through a podcast and grab a ton of more like information to the point. I find those YouTube videos, you know, when they're too like, Top 10 ways to do marketing. It's just the first five minutes, they're just kind of clickbaiting you. By the end of this video, you're going to hear this. Mm -hmm. And just wait a minute. And then they keep going on and on and on. So uh, I hope they enjoyed. Um, we're done here. Like, click, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. Um, and yeah, we're out. I never know how to end. Yeah, we're done. <laughs>